1: Teaching Legends would like to thank Squarespace,
0: Cameron Hughes-Wine, Best Fiends, The Great Courses Plus, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: Two weeks ago, we took you on a journey into the world of strange intruders with author and guest David Weatherly, who spoke with us at length about his book of the same name, This week, we're back with Mr. Weatherly to finish our discussion on the multitude of beings that can become entangled in our earthly lives. Now that the djinn, puckwudgies, and Shadow People have all drifted across our transom, it's time to dive into black-eyed men, women, and, of course, our old favorite, children, as well as those intruders into our world it seems would masquerade as perfectly normal-looking folks. That is, until they slip up, and you notice something odd about them. Let's not forget the Slender Man, either. Perhaps he's just a creation of an artist, sculpted further by the Internet. Or perhaps he's something more. Mr. Weatherly has also had a -a once-in-a-lifetime personal encounter with a Grinning Man, and he'll share that story with us tonight, too. So settle in. Turn the lights off. Light a candle and lock your door. Not that that would stop a lot of these visitors and get ready to go back into the world of Strange Intruders.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess.
1: Laugh all you want, but the world is changing, and I believe that these beings are going to continue to be a bigger part of it quoting a man named John on his multiple encounters with black-eyed beings from the book, Strange Intruders. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on Strange Intruders with our special guest, David Weatherly. What, what that's it? Where's the and we're back? Was it in there? Well, that was it. But see, I was saying it in the... Language of some of the strange intruders we're going to hear about a little bit later here.
2: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it does. That, it does say... mean, yes.
1: It does mean, and we're back. So, yeah, in case there was any confusion,
2: it does sound a little bit like uh, a character from a Rowdy Roddy Piper movie. If you haven't seen yeah. any of his uh, B grade sci-fi films just go get them all right now as with quarantine oh, there's on, no man. better they, time to watch when hell comes to Frogtown.
1: i'm just talking about they live they live awesome that is yeah. so apropos to what oh we're yeah gonna but be that's not him tonight. right he did them
2: i think them was him and then or was he <laughs> in they live i can't remember
1: all of the all <laughs> three of these are good movies so i just remember his bubblegum comic as weird as it sounds that does figure in so stay tuned folks
2: Well, we are back, folks, and we got a great show tonight, so we're going to get right back into it. Two very quick announcements. One, we're working on regular ceramic coffee mugs with the new Al, but be aware that we do have insulated tumblers now with lids and everything that will keep any beverage hot or, in my case, cold for hours. Mm. Just visit the store at our website for those.
1: Yes, and we will have some holiday stuff in there as well soon for those that are interested.
2: Also, for those of you that are fans of our other show, The Midnight Library, it is back in production and continues to get more entertaining and better produced with each episode so if you haven't checked it out already now's a good time and for those of you that haven't subscribed to seasons one and two season three is now underway on a more open schedule so look for the midnight library anywhere you get your podcast. okay let's get into this episode yeah, before we start talking about the stuff we've got on the on the play for tonight, I did want to call back to the last story from our mm. last episode with David from his book, Strange Intruders, that we shared with you at the end of part one. That story about the Italian gentleman, Pierre Fortunato Zanfretta, that story was truly <laughs> astonishing. I mean, you've got mm. giant reptiles— 52 eyewitnesses to a UFO, a grinning man, one of my favorites, a weird Mm. pyramid device that I guess is buried in the Italian countryside somewhere, and verifiable (laughs) trace evidence in the form of depressions in the earth, and this reminded me of the Delphus Ring, where something appeared to have landed. Like Skinwalker Ranch, it was everything Mm. paranormal and the kitchen sink.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there was a a haunted sink in there somewhere (laughs) in in the villa. But look, if you don't believe any of this at all— And maybe you just love good sci-fi like we do. All that makes for a really good story. Like I said, you don't have to buy into any of this. I hope you would pay attention to the details because I think they're going to be important one day. But really, just taking it as a story, it's like, that's why it was a great story to tell. That's why you got to get this book, because the book's filled with stories like that that you may or may not have heard of. I'm going to bet most people have not heard of most of these. Uh, unless you're a real buff, but... You mean buff like like you work out a lot? That's funny because that's <laughs> going to be working out and be getting buff is uh, figures into the next story we're going to read. But really, Scott, you know, sometimes they say a story has everything. Yeah, that story had everything. All the classic themes, man.
2: I just can't believe... That I haven't heard of it, and I think we need to get Rob Christopherson out of podcast retirement and bring him in to help us work this. I mean, God forgive me, Rob, if you. If, well, first of all, I don't even know if you're listening to podcasts anymore. I wouldn't blame me if you weren't. But <laughs> not this one. Secondly, yeah. if you've covered this story and I don't know it, forgive me. And if you haven't, uh, we got to get down to business because I I want to do an episode on Zanfretta.
1: Yeah, this is a good solid one parter, if not two. One thing I wanted to mention though is, and I guess it made my ears perk up, is that these beings seem to know who Dr. J. Allen Hynek is, Rob's UFO dad and all of ours. But it's like, no, don't give it to the president. We don't care who that is. Give it to this guy who really knows what he's talking about. It could have been several other uh, UFO researchers, but it's just funny that his name comes up.
2: Yeah, and where's that thing now? I mean, we got—this is why we got to cover this. They buried it out in the desert or something. And by the way, it sounds like a plasmosphere. you would get at Spencer Gifts. It's got a pyramid in it, and it's <laughs> yeah. shooting rays out. Right. But it will explain how things work. I don't know, man. It's like—the other thing is, well, it's like it feels a little Orfeo Angelucci-ish, to make up a word, uh, based on his last name. But just, Angelucci-esque? Yes. Yeah, ask, whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. right up there with the that pancake story that Rob did on Our Strange Skies. Uh, Oh, yes. I mean, what are these super weird encounters? They're so weird. But I mean, that's what Indrid Cold is, too. He comes down in a flying lantern with a squeaky metal door. What is that about? That freaks my noodle every time it comes up.
1: Everything that is going on on social media right now and on our television screens is being beamed into outer space. Not that, you know, that's where these creatures are coming from. I personally think it, it may be an interspace kind of a thing. But they see this stuff as like, man, that planet is so weird. We have to send people down there right now to check that out. That can't possibly be real. They're watching that. I mean, that person is a celebrity. Come on. Yeah. They got to take samples of this. And so we may appear just as freaky to them. And well, that is really one of the serious themes is that they have no idea how to interact with us. We're so foreign and weird in what we do. We're so far beyond the behavior of a group of cats that can be studied. They don't know what to say to us. They don't know how our things work, but they got to be here on the show because this is, you know, it's the greatest show in the galaxy. We're, <laughs> we're, we're that crazy. But it's interesting. Yeah, there's so many things going on here. And again, always going back to my mantra of look for similarities, that thing that was described sounds a little like the object that i don't know if it was commander david fravor at the time but some of the navy pilots said this thing that was a giant orb that was translucent you know so it's round like a bubble that had a square shape inside of it and it split the difference between two jets coming at it yeah it thread the needle there you know so they got a good look at it and that's what they said it looked like like a uh, as far as my memory of the article goes is that it was a shape within a shape, but a square within an orb that was translucent, or it could have been an orb inside of square. But I'm going to go with a uh, square.
2: Either way, I mean, it's not like one's an any orb. weirder than the other one,
1: right? <laughs> well, I guess one would seem more aerodynamic, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, maybe so. Uh, no, that's what it reminded me of. And and uh, then you look at the Beth sphere, and we got to see inside that, which was uh, you know one of our crowning achievements, getting a peek in that. And also it's three tiny sphere rules inside a sphere. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't be disappointed, but if I saw a lot of gears and levers and it looked like a, an old, uh, you know, mousetrap uh, Rube Goldberg contraption inside, it'd be funny, but I'd be maybe a little disappointed that it wasn't as elegant.
2: All right, so we got a lot more of our interview with David coming up tonight, but before we get back into that, we wanted to share the first of two very frightening stories from his book, Strange Intruders.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we, we got a few more stories than that, too, but I'm going to make a request to the audience, and that is pay attention to the details, because in each of these stories, you're going to see some connections here, and some descriptions are going to pop up that form a through line throughout all these stories, and that's why they flow so well in David's book. Some things connect and make sense and are similar, some things don't make sense and don't seem connected, but you wonder why or why not. And it's all just fascinating, but when you get to the end of it, it paints a bigger picture that something is going on here. A strange alien abduction case surfaced in Calgary in the province of Alberta, Canada, in 1967. The case involved a young man named David Seawalt and his encounter with a flying saucer piloted by crocodile-skinned aliens. David Seawalt was 14 years old at the time of the incident. It was November 17, 1967. After a day of high school, David went to a friend's house a few blocks away from his own family home. David and his friend Matt had a routine of lifting weights on a regular basis, an attempt to emulate the pro wrestlers they watched each week on television. David knew his parents didn't come home until 5.30 each evening, so it gave him and his friend over an hour to lift weights. On this particular day, the boys finished their routines around 5.45. David put his coat on, said farewell to his friend, and headed out to walk home. It was cold outside since the weather had started changing. The walk was normally a short one to his home, and this evening, David decided to take a shortcut. He took off across a field when suddenly, he heard a humming sound. At first, he thought perhaps it was a swarm of bees. He looked around and found nothing. Then suddenly, in the sky above him, he saw a large silver disc-shaped craft. On its upper dome were flashing colored lights. The ship moved quickly through the sky, then turned and started to swoop down towards him. The craft, it was later learned, was as large as a house and hovered 30 to 40 feet above the ground. At around 6.30, David rushed into his house. He almost ran into his older sister, Angela, as he darted up the stairs and into his bedroom. "'What's the matter with you, stupid? You're late!' she shouted after him. Angela followed David up the stairs to his bedroom. When she got to the door, she found her brother crouching on the floor, trying to hide under his bed. He was in a panic and clearly afraid of something. Angela noticed David was only wearing one shoe. Nervously, the boy peered out the window. What's wrong? Did you drop a barbell on your head? David didn't get the joke. All he could manage was a stuttered question. Is is it gone? Is what gone? Angela replied. The flying saucer. It chased me across the field from Matt's house. It was as if the statement didn't really register with Angela. "'You're acting much weirder than you usually do. "'Why are you so late?' "'It followed me,' David responded. "'It came toward me, and then, and then... uh, "'I don't remember. "'I was coming in the door.' Angela asked David why he had stayed at Matt's house so long that night. "'But I left there at a quarter to six, like I usually do,' he answered. David told his sister about the flying saucer he had seen in the field and how it swept down towards him, causing him to run the rest of the way home.' When Angela pointed out that he should still have been home in mere minutes after leaving his friend's house, David could not understand where the missing time had gone or why he couldn't remember anything else. Somehow, he had lost half an hour. As to David's missing shoe, it was later discovered outside, along the road. Likely, he had lost it in his frantic run to get to the safety of his house. Angela realized her brother had experienced something strange and she pushed him to tell their parents about the sighting. The Seawalts were unsure about how to handle the situation. They knew their son was not prone to making up stories or telling lies, but this was well outside the norm. David's sighting of the flying saucer and his loss of time proved to be just the tip of the iceberg. In the days following his encounter, David changed. Normally, he was a calm young man. Good natured and easygoing. Suddenly, he became very nervous. He was constantly looking about as if he was being followed. He jumped at sudden noises. Movements in his direction made him uneasy. Additionally, he experienced dizziness and disorientation. The Seawalts were at a loss as to how to help him. Then, while listening to the radio one night, they heard a program hosted by a UFO investigator. The investigator, W.K. Bill Allen, paid a visit to the Seawalt home a few nights later. He spoke with Angela and interviewed David extensively, trying to note every detail the boy could remember. After he left, David felt calmer and the whole family believed that at least they had done something. The family returned to a normal routine, but it only lasted five months. The quiet was shattered one night in April when David had a horrible dream. He struggled in his sleep, thrashing about and moaning loudly as if he was in pain. When a family member was finally able to wake him, he quickly stated he remembered what had happened to him. Call Dad, he said. There were monsters, he said. And they had taken him aboard the flying saucer. Bill Allen was called back to the family's home. Allen began working with David and the family to help get to the root of what David had experienced that November night. He suggested a series of hypnotic regressions to help the young man recover his lost memories of the incident. Allen enlisted the help of a dentist named Dr. Kimball, who was very well versed in hypnosis. Kimball used hypnosis frequently to help his patients and he had worked with Allen on other cases. Kimball, with Allen present, began to take David through the standard relaxation stages to induce a hypnotic state. He guided the boy back to the night in question, November 17th, 1967. Taking David through some of the memories of his time after school with his friend Matt, Kimball brought David to the moment in the field when he saw the saucer. Suddenly, the hypnotized boy could not answer any questions. His legs began to shake violently and fear racked his body. The doctor calmed the boy and brought him back out of the trance. Subsequent sessions only led to the same results. Once the young man recalled seeing the silver saucer in the sky, he became immobilized with fear and no further information could be obtained. Alan was now even more convinced that David had experienced something traumatic on the evening in November. After several sessions, Dr. Kimball decided to alter his approach. A different technique, he reasoned, may be needed to get beyond David's terror. The doctor suggested that David view the entire incident as though he was watching it on television, reminding him that he had never been hurt watching television and that nothing could possibly harm him now. Allen and Kimball called in a psychologist from the University of Alberta, Dr. Masson, to assist with the sessions. Under deep hypnosis and now just watching the events that had happened, David was able to answer questions about what had occurred in the field, The boy reported seeing a large silver saucer in the sky above him. The craft had colored lights all around it. He reported seeing blue, red, green, pink, yellow, and orange lights all coming from the ship. When asked what happened, David said an orange beam shot out from the bottom of the craft and shone on him. Pressed for details of what happened when the light hit him, David said he felt like he was in a trance and couldn't move. Next, he felt the beam pulling him causing him to rise up off the ground. The light pulled him all the way up and took him inside the flying saucer. Inside, he reported, were monsters. The doctor asked David to describe the beings that he was seeing. They're scary. They have eyes that go around the side of their heads, and they only have holes where their ears and nose should be. They're brown. They just keep staring at me, not saying anything. How many monsters are there? The doctor asked. David replied that there were two. The doctor also asked the young man to describe what kind of clothing the creatures were wearing. The boy reported the creatures were not wearing any clothing at all, and they had rough, brown skin like that of a crocodile. The hypnotists then asked David if the beings also had a back like a crocodile. I never saw their backs, the boy replied. Further questions revealed the creatures were about the size of David's father. They didn't seem to express any emotion, not anger or happiness, just a cold stare. The aliens placed David on a low cot and undressed him. They then proceeded to take him down a hallway into another room. Here, bright lights covered the ceiling. David then described what has become very typical in abduction scenarios He was placed on an examination table while the crocodile beings worked around him. They made buzzing noises David believed to be the sound of them communicating with one another. The creatures only had a small slit where a mouth would normally be. In the brightly lit room, the aliens continued to examine the boy. He's lifting my head up. He's lifting it up. He looks at my hair and my eyes and my nose Despite the deep hypnosis and the detached view, David was clearly having difficulty recounting this portion of his experience. At this point, David reported that he believed four of the creatures were present. Further into the hypnosis session, David reported the creatures did something else. They put this thing over me. It's a grayish color, and they just throw it over me, and then this great big huge orange colored light comes down, and is shown on me. Then one of them took sort of a needle. It's gray, it's small. He sticks it in my arm. After the examination, the creatures dressed the boy and wheeled him to another part of the ship. They placed him in the orange beam of light, which transported him down to the field where he had been snatched. It was at this point David ran back to his home in a panic. All memories of the incident and the aliens lost until his dreams and sessions with a hypnotist revealed his experience with the crocodile aliens. Whoa. I
2: mean, it's okay. Firstly, it's hard for me not to (laughs) think of a giant crocodile type alien as being a little bit comical. Like, I I would be both petrified, but I might have to do one of those things where I laugh a little bit and it seems like I'm trying to cough, like Uh, my lips shoot out because I'm like... (laughs) Okay. But at the same time, it's terrifying, (laughs) right? right. you know, it depends on how good they look. Do they really look like crocodiles or do they look like a dude wearing a a really ill-fitting costume?
1: Well, here's my point that you just reminded me of. Do they have a snout like an alligator or crocodile? That adds to the comical and also frightening because it's filled with sharp teeth, but that's not the case here. So as we can only surmise from what was described in the story, Is that they had uh, no ears, so no pointy ears, just holes like a lot of reptiles where the ears should be and a little slit for a mouth, which is very typical alien. If a crocodile were to stand up, Mm -hmm. would it be capable of
2: bending its neck enough to 90 degrees to look forward or would it just be forced to stare at the sky? (laughs)
3: and then how does it talk to you
1: yeah so it just you know there's some questions there or whatever a couple of points here one the buzzing i mentioned that was the language somehow or maybe that's just what david heard yeah but in addressing your point about what can they do do they have snouts what do their faces look like owing to david's limited comprehension as a young boy of alien crocodile space pilots that's all he could describe. So again, coming from the description of the story, which we just read, they don't have crocodile snouts. One of the the dentist hypnotist asked him if they had crocodile backs, because I think he's trying to get uh, more details out of him, coax him out of, you know, his really horrifying experience to see what we're talking about here. And it sounds like they have more human-like heads, but with some crocodile features.
2: See, now that's scary. That's scary.
1: Okay, Like if they got a
2: crocodile body and a human (laughs) head. Also, by the way, I just want to reiterate for our audience in case they are Keeping track, and oh, by the way, when I said no one's taking notes, and we got all those wonderful pictures <laughs> on Twitter of people yeah, who yeah. take notes on the episodes, love wow. it, so awesome. But um, the David we're talking about in the story is David Seawalt. It's not David Weatherly yes. who wrote the book, although the story no, no. appears in his book. But it is David Seawalt; it's a different person. And this is not David's personal story, but yeah, how does the anatomy work? And then again, you know, this plays into that whole picture that we talk about and will continue to talk about in this episode and in many more in terms of the broken record aspect of Astonishing Legends, but the idea mm. that is what you're seeing even real anyway, or is it just something that's getting presented in a form that works for your comprehension, you know?
1: True. It, interesting you brought that up because David, a little bit later on in the interview here, will talk about Weatherly. our perception. Yeah, yes. I'm sorry, yes. David <laughs> Weatherly, will, the author, will talk about the perception filter, you could say, of... Our experience versus what these things really are. Are they hiding in some form? In this case, I have to think that they're actually appearing as they are. So, as David, the child, had witnessed, they weren't wearing any clothes or spacesuits. And you hear so many different variations. They could have just had crocodile snouts, but wearing silver suits with large decorative buckles. In this case, they were just as God at least of this universe, made them. Oh, yes, yes, yes. that it. nice
2: uh, spinal tap quote, you know? He's like, yeah. you old fruit, <laughs> I'm just as God made me, sir.
1: Yeah. Um. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but But that's the point in that in reference to your perception, is it more scary if they had large snouts with long teeth and then, you know, can they turn their heads? What can they do? In David's book, they're often described, these reptilians, as having large eyes as David the kid said, that wrapped around their heads or were just large and more reptilian positioned. Yeah. And having bipedal bodies with arms and legs, but with more reptilian-like hands and feet. And so there are all these different kind of descriptions, but these are more... Yeah, they're not crawling on the ground with stubby arms and legs uh, or all four legs.
2: Yeah, there's a point at which they're walking a fine line between fear and comedy here. So they've got to appear the right
1: way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to that. But you wonder, look at the skinks and geckos that surround us and the, the bearded lizards and people things that people have for pets. And imagine that uh, species having several billion years to evolve to a point where they came out of the swamp or wherever they came from, and now they started communicating. They developed language, technology, spacecraft, still don't need clothes. No. Because why? They're, they're nude. Excellent temperature control in these ships, but they have all these other powers like uh, a light beam that can lift you up from the sky and put you in the ship. Yeah, they're like, we're done with Wildebeest. We're headed to Pluto. Yeah, I just just imagine, (laughs) though, the path of evolution for these things. Yeah. They evolved into bipedal bodies because that seems to be efficient for what they want to do. But they're still basically crocodile looking. And that's what David sees.
0: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom.
4: I'm Jeff Erickson from Castle Rock, Colorado, and when I'm not trying to convince my wife that Bigfoot is real, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
2: Forrest, have you been reading this stuff lately? There's an... I didn't vet this, and I'm not saying that I did, so I don't know if the original article that inspired the spate of press releases about this is accurate or was published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, but it was an observation that several different branches of things were evolving into crabs.
1: I did see the headline. Yeah. I did
2: see that, yeah. So my question is, you know, when you think about this, and, you, and if you're going to entertain the idea of these things coming from other places, I have to say... If life is kind of following the same rules throughout Mm -hmm. the galaxy or the universe, and we don't know if it is, I've always thought about that, you know, that expression life as we know it, but if it is following the same rules, it does seem like the reptile development is going to be a little bit tougher and maybe better suited to moving forward and having more abilities of self-preservation and all that sort of thing as you go out to conquer the universe or this branch of the Milky Way, whatever's convenient. What
1: are you saying? Are, are you saying that physical form should develop where it's easy to make things or control things rather than just uh, eat things in the swamp?
2: Well, I don't know. I'm just saying we're all soft and gooey and not yeah. really equipped for deep space travel. It seems like ah, reptile see might be saying. a better thing. I mean, of course, you have to bring along a lot of mice and things to eat, but like still.
1: No, that's a big question and, and such a vast array of colorful characters from outer space and that grays the thinking is is like, well, you don't you don't need all that rough and tumble uh physical element to yourself. So your body shrink down. You got a big brain and big eyes, but the mouth and verbal communication is not so important. So maybe even eating is not such a big deal. So your mouths are tiny <laughs> and you can communicate telepathically. So you don't need that function of speech as much. You don't need to be big, brawny, gorn-like creatures. That dude couldn't even close his mouth. Yeah. He couldn't. That's (laughs) what I'm talking about. The crocodile (laughs) bipedal uh, caveman of sorts or cave lizard of sorts. But here's what I've come to learn in the development of my thinking, having done all these shows and and research now, is that there's room for every bit of weirdness. There's all kinds of creatures, every description you can think of uh, that we can possibly imagine. And maybe it's just us and our colorful imaginations trying to filter all this stuff. But if these things are described as they truly are, then there's no limit to the types of creatures that are out there or can evolve from something somewhere.
2: I'm poking a little fun because this is rife with uh, comedic opportunities, but by the same token – The same kinds of far out things were proposed by Terry Lovelace in his story. And that's one of the most frightening and serious stories I've ever heard. So, by the way, I'm not trying to belittle David Seawald's story. It's a little bit of gallows humor, I guess.
1: There are several lines. Look, even in our own science fiction, you have uh, District 9, Proles, as they call them, uh, which are, (laughs) like, and those are more insectoid slash reptilian type creatures probably more bug-like. In Arrival, you have more cephalopod. You know, that's another theory, uh, is that they're from outer space. They're from somewhere else. They're very smart. They only live a few years under the water, so they have to be very smart very fast. And we're starting to wonder about where some of the creatures that are on Earth now uh, have come from.
2: So long, and thanks for all the fish.
1: Yeah, just, you gotta <laughs> wonder if there's gotta be other plants. And this is another thing I was thinking about when watching the the documentary very recently called Phenomenon 2020, James Fox, I believe is the director, excellent documentary on the UFO phenomenon with major cases, very straightforward and just, just totally fascinating. And I just thought like, you know, once you get done watching it, you just wonder, it's like, man, if you don't think that there are UFO craft out there of some kind and life from at least other planets, if not other planets, then maybe our own uh, multiverses here and uh, John Kill's haunted planet in our own haunted psyches you're kind of on the outside now. Yeah. You must be really in denial. And, and no offense to people who still don't believe in any of this, because I can understand that. But really, of all the revelations that have come forth, especially since 2017.
2: How boring?
1: I mean, like, it's always been well, I don't
2: know. You know, it's like, I, I, I just, we get these emails from this one company tells us how we're ranking in different countries oh, around yeah. the world. And <laughs> right. it's always rife with reviews. And there was mm-hmm. one in the, and I'm like, why are you putting reviews in this email to us? Just, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> and also, I don't care where we're ranking. We're just doing what we do. If it works great. But like, right. the one person was just like, pseudo scientific crap or something like that. Oh, one star. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know what? Go live in your world of zero possibilities outside what is immediately known. And hey, th- that's okay.
1: Yeah. I support that. And actually, I support science. I love science. This is science. I mean, it's science fiction to a lot of people, but everything we're talking about, has some aspect in science, and it may be, as we always say, just science we don't know about yet. But really, and again, not to put anybody down, but I do believe it is a little bit of whistling through the graveyard denial Mm -hmm. when you won't even entertain the possibility of there being anything out there that isn't just mundane. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Look, after we've talked about all these stories, it's frightening. It's weird. But I think it's important to just consider it. At least it's fun for us. And as we'll see, sometimes it's a a lot more than just fun. But just a few thoughts here as we finish up and transition to the next thing. See, I told you there was bodybuilding involved in the story. (laughs) And little did you know, at the beginning of the show, when you mentioned Rowdy Roddy Piper, these boys were lifting weights because they were big fans of professional wrestling. Everything's connected. Everything's sort of. connected.
2: Also, by the way, I said that them was 1954. They Live yeah. was 1988. They Live is the there one with know. Rowdy Roddy, where he had those special sunglasses that allowed him to see the aliens. Right, Yeah. right. Which I can't, they weren't reptilian necessarily, but they may as well have been.
1: No, they were freaky skeleton-like creatures. Yeah. But the point is that they were among us. And that is going to be the theme of the next section here. But just to, to finish up, about UFOs, always with the colored lights. It must be more than just decorative. There must be something about... Well, I, I do believe this too, is that there is something important and uh, the maybe the end result of high technology, far beyond our imagination, involves light, of course, and colors of light, frequencies. Different colors, frequencies of light and vibration all seem to matter with extremely high technology. So that's one thing. The other thing, though, is even with all that high technology aliens still can't alter time here in this plane of existence. And as powerful as all these alien beings seem to be, they still can't alter it. Just our perception of it by erasing a portion of it from our memories. So like I said, they can't like this. We're just going to stop time for a bit, do our experiments, and this boy will get back home in time for dinner. All they can do is make you not remember it. And then that's the missing time portion.
2: I always think of, I, we're making a lot of movie references tonight, but I always think of um, the fifth yeah. element with that one dude who yeah. uh, who's the alien with the big ears and he has to pretend to be human, right? And he's right. like, and he can't quite <laughs> hold it together when he's trying to uh, get on the ship to Floston Paradise. That yes. gets behind this whole idea that these things, what they're appearing in this form, these alien crocodile men don't even care about trying to look human to you. They're not okay. trying
1: yeah. to hide themselves. As we'll see, some of these things that are trying to hide amongst us can't quite keep it together all the time. It must be really hard for them. Or they, they try and they don't have uh, the wherewithal and the technology to be able to do that. And maybe that's not their fault. Maybe that's the rule from the, uh, the powers of the universe here. But look, alien crocodile men don't seem to be trying to take on human form. They have no fear of being themselves or need to hide their form. They can exist freely in their own environment and apparently can easily control ours. But this next story from a retired computer expert named John shows that there may be reptoids or reptilian beings that are trying to hide amongst us as humans and not being totally successful at it. Now, are these reptilians hiding in plain sight related or connected to their high-flying cousins? Or are they a physical form of a supernatural being like the ancient djinn? And the real question is, why are they trying to appear human? What are they playing at? For several years
2: in the early 2000s, I lived in a house just outside of Dayton, Ohio. It was a quiet area, mostly working class people, and the houses were pretty reasonable cost-wise. I was living on a street where most of the homes had a good-sized yard. The people mostly kept to themselves, but would speak to you if you were outside in the yard or walking around. I had a huge front yard and it seemed like I had to mow it constantly. I would often speak to my next door neighbor on a casual basis. He had a small plumbing company and honestly, we didn't really have anything in common. My background was computers and he wasn't interested in that at all. Still, he seemed to know everything about the neighborhood. I think because his wife was so nosy and kept up with all the local news. About five houses down from mine, there was an empty ranch house. When I was looking for a house myself, the realtor mentioned it to me. She said that it had sat empty for a good while and that I could probably get it pretty easy and cheap. When I asked why, she told me that the people who used to live there had been foreclosed on and had torn the inside of the house up. They busted all the fixtures and ripped holes in the walls. I wasn't interested in having to deal with that kind of repair, so I didn't even look at the place. It was almost a year after I moved into my house before someone moved into the ranch home. The weird thing was, I saw these people moved in very suddenly didn't see any workers at the house making repairs. I thought, well, the guy must plan to do it all himself. Of course, my next-door neighbor and his wife had a lot to say about it. My neighbor had stopped by and offered his card, along with a discount on some of the plumbing work that needed to be done in the house. He said that the man stood blocking his view inside the house, but he could see a little. There were just some mattresses on the floor of the living room. No furniture, he told me. The man took the business card and just looked at it for a moment then handed it back, saying there was nothing that needed done in the home. With that, he closed the door. I started seeing the new people on a regular basis when I was out walking my dog. It was my habit to take the dog around on a course of several blocks, down to a park, and then back to my house. It would be about 5.30 when I was walking down our street, and I would see this guy pull up in his old car. It was a beater, and it sounded like it was barely running. The guy usually wore some pretty worn-out clothing, so I figured they didn't have a whole lot of money. The car was always full of trash. I mean really full, overflowing in the back seats. You couldn't have sat back there for all of the trash. I'd always say hello, but this guy never responded to me. Finally, I got to where I just wouldn't say anything because I knew he wouldn't respond. I ran into him one night at the nearby Myers grocery store. He was in the meat department, and he had a cart that was slammed full of meats. From what I could see, it was all beef. Lots of hamburgers, steaks, and so forth. He looked up and saw me looking into his shopping cart and gave me a nasty look. I said hello to him and I commented, Ah, you must be having a barbecue. He looked like I had slapped him. I've never seen such a look. He opened his mouth and made sort of a hissing sound. Just weird. Like the air being forced out of his teeth. He turned around and stormed away and I saw him head to the checkout. I just didn't know what to make of the incident. It had me curious, though, and the next day, when I saw my next-door neighbor, I had to bring up the strange people. Don't get me started on them, he said. When I asked what he meant, he told me that his wife would not stop talking about them. He told me that his wife claimed to see the woman outside in the backyard, chasing a cat. The cat got away, and this lady was really angry about it. Here's the kicker, though, he said. My wife says that lady was wearing a wig and that it fell off. When it did, she said the woman's head is bald and scaled like a snake's. He went on to tell me that his wife had become obsessed with the idea that they were reptiles and that she was constantly reading about such things on the internet. He was worried that his wife was really losing it. I'm just a curious guy by nature, probably to my detriment sometimes, but now I was really curious about these people. I decided to try a little experiment the next night. I started walking my dog and took my time until I saw the old car pulling up. I got to the guy just as he was crossing the sidewalk to go into his house and let my dogs lead out some. My dog ran forward, but when he got close to this guy, he turned and ran back to me. I stepped up right beside the man. He wouldn't say anything to me even when I pressed at him and he averted his eyes away from me. When he turned, I noticed that he was wearing a toupee. I was flabbergasted. Not only was he wearing a headpiece, but coming from underneath it, on his neck, there was what looked like very dried skin. It almost looked like scales. My God, I thought, could my neighbor's wife be right? Were these people not people at all? John threw himself into research and, like most people these days, turned to the internet. What he found was a massive amount of information, speculation, and dialogue about the so-called reptilians— He spent time talking to his neighbor's wife to get the details about her account directly from her. She had convinced herself that reptilians were in their midst and that they were working to take over the country. She spent all her time watching videos on the internet and reading material from authors who are convinced there's some grand reptilian conspiracy to take over the planet. She even took to calling the weird neighbors the snakeheads. John had a number of other experiences related to the weird family. Besides the husband and wife, there were two other older boys that lived in the house. John and others assumed they were the children of the couple. They rarely went outside the house and, like their father, never spoke to anyone. There was a teenage boy from the neighborhood that I started paying to cut my grass. He'd been doing it for a while and we would often chat about football since we were both big fans. One day he looked at me very serious and asked if I knew anything about the people down the street. When I asked him why, he told me that he had stopped by their house and offered to cut their grass. One of the boys had opened the door and just shook his head no. I could see their kitchen table, he told me. They were all sitting there, and I swear they were eating raw meat. The odd family lived in the neighborhood for a year and a half. One day, they all piled into the old car and left, never to be seen again. John happened to catch a work truck in front of the house one day and stopped to see what was going on. It was a cleanup crew sent by the realty company. I went in and just started talking to the workers. The place was a total wreck. There were old mattresses on the floor with just a dirty sheet on them. There was a dining room table that was roughly nailed together. It looked like it came from a dump. All the holes were still in the walls. There weren't even any toilets, just the holes in the floors where they had been. There was fecal matter on the floors of the bathroom. In the kitchen, there was trash everywhere. Most of it was from meat packages. The stench was overwhelming. Being a self-proclaimed rational thinker, John spent time trying to find logical reasons to explain away the incidents he and others had noted around the family. He found the reptilian theories on the internet too extreme and too far outside of his traditional belief systems. Still, he is left with many unanswered questions. Honestly, I just didn't know what to think. The neighborhood was not the same while those people lived there. Everyone just seemed uneasy. A lot of people had seen strange things, but I don't know if it was all coincidental or if something else was going on. I still have a hard time bringing myself to accept that they were some kind of reptiles, but I can't deny how weird it all was. The jury is out on what John was dealing with. While he hadn't accepted that people were aliens or reptoids, he's open to all possibilities. As he stated, if they were human, they certainly weren't normal people. If they were something else, well, I'm just glad they went away.
1: Well, what'd you think of all that? Because you hadn't heard this story before, right? No,
2: I hadn't. And uh, I feel like I just brought this up in our last episode or maybe the one before that. But I recently saw again uh, with my son, The Burbs, (laughs) which is a hilarious movie. Lots of movies tonight. I apologize for all the movie references, but mm. uh, it's old school Astonishing Legends.
1: I'm fine with this because what we've been discussing, this is just a big movie to a lot of people. Yeah. This is science fiction here. Yeah.
2: But I mean, the burbs, the thing that, you know, no spoilers, but it's about weird neighbors. And Yeah. But my point is just like the idea that the whole neighborhood is, and you know, things can get out of control. And anyone who's been on uh, that one website, which I don't want to get sued for, so I'm not going to say their name, mm. but the one that you okay. can only be on in your local neighborhood, which I was I on for a while before I completely deleted it because everyone on it is constantly freaking out about everyone else that ever does anything outside of their house. So (sighs) I remember like the thing that made me leave that place (laughs) was a whole giant discussion about all these people going to visit a drug dealer. And they were parking on this street and walking through the woods. And there was a billion people doing this. And it was clear they were going in there for some kind of clandestine meeting. And turned out it was just overflow parking for the church that was on the other side of the (laughs) empty lot. So I was just like, okay, I'm done with that. But my point about it is, You start to realize that dynamic, especially when people are peeking out their windows and everything. So there's a little bit of that than I think about with a story like this. But by the same token, this is a lot of freaky stuff and a lot of freaky details. However, on the other hand, you and I both know that stories like this get out of control. Things get added. You know, it's definitely weird enough that I'm going to keep thinking about it for a while.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, this is one of my favorite stories from the book, I think, because it is so detailed. It went on for a while. And yes, you're hearing it. Well, I guess David, uh, it was related to David Weatherly from this person, John. And I think in some of these cases, David Weatherly had gone back for additional investigation to, to follow up with people and interview them. I'm not, I'm not sure about this case, but I I think in some of the other ones as well. So this one, you had some other confirmations. Yes, you have the bewitched Gladys Kravitz, nosy neighbor type, but she sees a lot more. And I don't know what's freakier seeing, uh, Samantha or Tabitha from bewitched performing some magic where things are floating through the air or realizing in a very real way that maybe your neighbors aren't completely human. Because that's a frightening aspect of it. I mean, let me put it this way. there's some other stories in the book that are much more frightening, I think, because they can affect you physically, emotionally, mentally, psychically, and that can last for years, maybe for the rest of your life. But in this case, like, this is just more disturbing and it leads to a lot of questions.
2: I know where there's a house like this that fits the bill. I don't know anything about the people in it because I haven't seen them, but the house itself fits the bill of this perfectly right now in high point north carolina i know exactly where it is mm-hmm. they keep livestock in cages on the back porch so there's there's some interesting stuff going on and it's run down <laughs> yeah. and it was a foreclosure or it's about to be and so it's like Ooh, what's going on in there i don't know yeah, But i haven't seen course, the people so yeah. i can't say anything about them
1: uh, i referred to this before the old tom Waits song like what's he building in there yeah <laughs> <laughs> What's he doing? He's got a dog. Nobody visits. So, yeah, you, you have these uh, scenarios and— uh, That's a great this reference. This doesn't—it's pretty good. But there isn't this collective things getting out of a hand in a, in a weird Twilight Zone kind of way with, right. a, with a, you know, a, a weird neighborhood. This is one guy's experience that seems to be, if you believe him, confirmed by other people in the neighborhood and they're not all getting on board with this. And the other thing I do like about John's approach is that he still can't say what's going on. He's just weirded out by this, and he's trying to be rational about it, but this is such an irrational event. Like, look, that was so well science fiction. It's like the TV series V. Yes. Although The 2009 version. Marina Bakkarin's outer covering was a lot more appealing. <laughs> <really say>. uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I remember. Like,
2: I just remember Robert England from the original. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. Uh, Freddy yeah, Krueger is an alien. Yeah, I think it also blows people away. Now you could argue that. Uh, well, that's what people's imaginations are running to—is just sci-fi and pop culture, and we've heard all these stories. So when you see something weird, that's what you're imagining. On the other hand, it's like, you can't assume that really with everybody, unless it's also some weird subconscious psychical thing going on in a group hive mind, and then you're back to the woo, okay? But here, quickly, Scott, let's go over some of the similarities between the crocodile aliens and uh, these neighborly folks. (laughs) You know, aside from having a leathery, scaled, lizard-like skin appearance, I see actually more differences than similarities between these crocodile aliens and the snakehead neighbors. One, the snakehead neighbors had crappy transportation, of course, in the form of a beater car with all the garbage inside. And from the indication of the condition of the house after they left, they lived literally like animals, eating raw meat, living in squalor, not minding the stench of their own garbage, pooping into holes in the bathroom instead of toilets, and not always with good aim, and not needing furniture. They just slept on mattresses with dirty sheets. And I have to imagine... That at least the crocodile astronauts had nice clean heads, or ships toilets on board, and cleaned up after themselves.
2: Well, the first thing I'll say is that everybody that's peeking in the front door of this house and seeing, or or going in after they've left and seeing all this stuff, clearly has not seen an episode of Hoarders.
3: Oh um, well, yeah, because okay, I will. That. I
2: know. I just will say there are people that yeah. are uh, unwell that do yeah. live. There's a lot of territory here that's common but having seen many many episodes of that show no i do not have a fascination with it but having Mm. seen many episodes of that show i will say that it's rare for an entire family there may Mm. be one or two members but usually the other ones have gotten out right to all be living that way and also there's never a consumption of raw meat situation they're still trying (laughs) to eat normal food even if they're living in squalor i know and they have issues going on that lead to that sort of lifestyle they're not sitting around eating raw meat. So that's like, because there's a lot of things now that you see, thanks to a billion channels and a billion TV shows, you're like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this is, there's some people dealing with some really tough stuff out there. So you, you're more exposed to that now than you might've been back when these stories originated. But again, right. you're not eating raw meat. And, yeah. um, in terms of squatting, there's, you know, literally and figuratively, there's things that you do and don't do. So it's, it's a little strange. Sure.
1: Yeah. The hissing, uh, yeah, it just, it, that's it all... no, none of, nobody I've seen on hoarders hisses. So wow. To have experienced that and just, you have to put everything together because it, it paints a whole picture. And I think you can do that with a, a more human scenario and kind of sum up like, yes, this person has a hoarding problem or. They're just not very hygienic or there's just something weird about them or they just have a skin condition. And if you take all these elements together, to me, it points to something else going on that's just a lot more weird. Okay, so now if you might be noticing here, there's a transition point, And this happens in David's book as well. It's chapter six, which he calls hiding in human form. And the subchapter, the presence of evil. Because what we're going to see now is we're coming from weirdo reptile aliens to Earth-bound aliens without a good ship hiding in human form to, to me, much more frightening and disturbing beings in that they're much better. However, they're just not quite human enough. And for these next set of stories, what's more frightening to me is that these next set of creatures are much, much better at hiding in human form. But occasionally, at the right moment, under the right conditions, you might notice something about them that might scar you for the rest of your life. Well, before we get into the next portion of our interview
2: with David, there were a couple of stories from his book that we just wanted to touch on before we got into that. Um, There was the one uh, particularly that we're we're calling Robert in Hawaii... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> of course, uh, yeah, uh, can you
2: tell our listeners a little bit about that story?
1: What I find really fascinating about this one, and of course, you're going to hear a similarity to other beings that we've mentioned before. But in this case, I, what I love about David's book is that he's included stories that are all slightly different. It's not the same thing over and over, but there are points in the story, there are details that we can take as evidence in trying to build an explanation possibly, an understanding of what's going on. So each of these are slightly different in the way that they're presented and the way that these creatures behave, but with a lot of similar outcomes for the human, normal, unsuspecting people that have to witness this. So in one of the stories that David covers in the book, it's about a guy named Robert The setup is that he moved to Hawaii. He'd been doing a lot of traveling and moving around. He just wanted to settle down in a nice location. So he moved to a remote, beautiful part of Hawaii, which is pretty secluded. But there were a few people there in this jungle-like atmosphere. He did have a few neighbors, and two of those were Tom and Anne. And this couple started off seeming very normal and nice. Regular people. They lived a little ways away from Robert, and that I I think he had to cross a stretch of jungle and cross a bridge or cross the river to get to their place, but they would hang out a lot. So for the first few months, he got to know them. He was going over to dinner quite a lot. They seemed just really nice, normal people, and uh, maybe a little lonely and reclusive. They never seemed to have anybody else come around their place, never seemed to have any other visitors, but Tom played uh, music. Uh, He was a musician, I guess, and was a great cook, so she made good food really nice people. And uh, they seemed maybe a little lonely, but yes, something uh, was off in that Robert thought they may have been running from something or hiding from something. So one night, Robert goes over to their place, like he'd always been doing, like, I think once a week. And as he describes it from the book, one night after I'd already lived there for several months, I was over at their house and as usual, just sitting at the table, enjoying food and conversation. I was eating, looking down at my plate. Tom and Anne were saying something when, all of a sudden, like a switch went off. They stopped talking in mid-sentence. I looked up from my plate across the table at Tom sitting and Anne standing next to him. And I saw them there, as if frozen in time. Their mouths were wide open, and their eyes and their mouths completely black. And I don't mean normal black. I mean a deep, empty black. Blacker than a black you've ever seen in your life. Almost like another dimensional black. Their mouths as black as their eyes. You could feel the black, if that makes any sense. I was immediately struck with a sense of fear. As I stood up and looked at them, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I wasn't high. I wasn't drinking. I was just seeing something that I couldn't understand. I sat back down, contemplating running through that dark jungle full of fear to get home when everything returned to normal, like a light switch turned back on. It was as if nothing had happened at all. The whole episode lasted about 15 seconds, maybe longer. I was in shock. So I got a good chance to make sure what I was seeing was really what I was seeing. After everything returned to normal, I was left with extreme fear and that overwhelming sense that I needed to get out of there. Tom and Ann asked what was wrong, and I said, I- "I'm sorry. I I just have to go. I-, I have to leave. I have to go." It would prove to be a long, scary walk back home through the jungle, and that's the passage I wanted to read. But he didn't go over there for weeks after that. He only saw them occasionally, and then uh, he left. He never told that story to anyone. Very few people until he told David. But here's the strange thing about the wrap up of that story, and that Robert said he felt extreme fear and being in the presence of evil yeah for that brief moment they were not human something out of them popped out and that whatever popped out was evil the thing i also want to point out was not just the black eyes the mouths were open and black right like a void right to the depths of hell (laughs) and after that here's the other thing that we're going to see common uh to a lot of these experiencers uh he had a form of PTSD that he cannot explain. He had extreme panic attacks while driving. He had an extreme fear of heights which he never had before. So what's going on, Scott? What is that about?
2: Well, that's interesting. You know, when you get to those like lasting effects that stay with you, it seems like more more than just witnessing something, right? It it seems like you're participating in something.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you're you're I didn't think of it that way. You're kind of an audience for this. Yeah. Because it's not like he angered them. As the stories we'll hear before, when these things pop out of human form totally, it's because they're triggered by something that angers them, usually something they did not expect. They were surprised in some way, they were caught off guard. Bam, you see it for a second. In this case, it was like something was inside them that they maybe weren't even aware of that just came forward in a moment where they froze, and it's like, it's just creepy. Yeah. It's like they yeah, froze, yeah. they turned off being human for 15 seconds and just stood there. Why? Because something was broadcasting directly into Robert, and that was fear and uh, this sense of evil that somehow stayed with him a little bit for a long time afterwards. Who can say? It's freaky. <laughs> well, the, yeah. Okay. So, well, this next story we can compare to that experience in this book also involves neighbors. A lot of neighbors tonight. Weird neighbors, as you said, the birds. <laughs> Well, this is also a burb story, and this one involves a Charlene in Florida talking about some weird neighbors. And she had a, a nice couple that started off, well, they seemed nice starting off. Their names were Chad and Beth, and they moved into the rental house next door. And so after a while, they would, as you do with your neighbors, you get to know them, Charlene and her husband invited Chad and Beth over for a cookout. Now, there's a couple of points to this story, which you, again, get the book and read this because you're going to get a lot more details than we're, we're talking about here, of course. But there's a few interesting points to note in this visit, and that they invite them over, but Chad and Beth seem really afraid of the grill. Fire bad. <laughs> they, they just. <laughs> fire, bad. Sorry, that's a better Frankenstein. Yeah. Monster. Frankenstein's a monster. Yeah. Even after they closed the grill, they wouldn't go near it. Like they somehow they were afraid of the heat or the flame or the fire or just something. They wouldn't go near it. So they started to act really weird. And then what would happen is that Beth would start coming over to Charlene's house during the day just to visit. There wasn't any point to the visits and she rarely said anything. Yeah. So Charlene found that really weird. The only thing she would do is look around the house like staring at everything. Yeah, that's weird. Is she taking notes on human behavior and human items? Possibly. But here's another weird incident. The cat comes out of the bedroom and Beth reacts really uh, sharply, you could say, to this thing, gives it a really dirty look and and almost like a hiss uh, with her eyes. The cat freaks out, runs back into the bedroom and Charlene's wondering what's happening, but Beth stands up, so doesn't say a word, and walks out of the house. So Charlene tells all this to her husband, and they, we, we gotta go over and talk to them. You know, the husband's now like, uh, what's their deal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they go over there, and uh, they hear all these weird noises, like crashing and banging, like things, uh, smashing against the walls, and all these very strange noises. Then they just show up at the door, the door opens, they're standing side by side. And, uh, They're acting like nothing's happening. And I think uh, that's when Charlene asks them, like, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to apologize. You know, were you afraid of the cat? I didn't realize you were afraid of cats. The husband, Chad, shoots Beth a really nasty look, like he's really angry now. And I guess Beth is uh, so shocked or frightened herself that she doesn't say anything. It's really an awkward moment. And at that moment, when their eyes turn completely black, they like everyone else, gets a sense of uh, impending evil and uh, we have to get the heck out of here like right now. Charlene and her husband run back home and ever since then, Chad and Beth weirdly looked out at them through the blinds. That alone is pretty creepy, but after seeing their eyes turn black, just, yeah, just not what you want to see with your neighbors. And of course, after a while, I think they just left the neighborhood, as we saw with the snakeheads. They just leave and nobody knows what happens to them. They leave in the middle of the night. Everyone else in the neighborhood also thought they were really weird, but I don't believe anybody else saw their eyes turn black. Now, this might be a case that I think David followed up on himself, David Weatherly, and did some investigating and asked around and uh, didn't get anything other than that, that they just moved out, and it must have been late at night since no one saw them, and that's another thing that we see here. Once something's discovered... They just go away and no one ever sees them again. And they, but they go in the middle of the night.
2: Again, two things two things I'm going to go. I'm going to say the burbs again. And then I'm also going to (laughs) say, right. One of the strongest recurring themes for us uh, across all the episodes we've ever done of anyone encountering any kind of thing, like the, you know, the kinds of things in David's book and even stuff outside of that is that feeling of fear, that, yeah, that fight or flight thing, which I do believe is a gut instinct, which is one of the things that I think differentiates your exposure to a hoax or something fake and something that even your subconscious mind knows is a threat. And I think that, you know, I mean, of course you can be scared by a hoax, you know, there's jump scares, whatever. Mm -hmm. But like in terms of that visceral thing that reaches down into you and makes you really afraid, that always feels like that's something real. And it's remarkable how many of these encounters include that component.
0: Yeah. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: Hi there. My name is Lee. And I'm not, when I'm not fighting hordes of zombies, I'm listening to astonishing legends. Back, back
2: you devils!
1: Well, this next story we're going to briefly talk about involves a guy named Marcel that David met when he was speaking at the Sacramento UFO Paranormal Summit, and it's about another bizarre couple, but this one happens in New York City in 2010, and Marcel doesn't believe these folks were human, but they were hiding in human form, and I also like a New York story because people think like, well, this only happens in the suburbs. Nope. Happens everywhere, or can happen everywhere. And this story takes place when Marcel was living in a downtown third floor apartment building that he describes like, well, it wasn't very nice, but it was it was livable and it's what he could afford. But he did notice there was a high turnover rate there. And there's a couple that lived across the hall from them named Jeff. And Jeff was a reclusive loner, not too old of a guy, probably in his uh, 20s. But he noticed, uh, again, odd things. Jeff always had the TV on day and night, always running. And he never saw anybody else go in there. I mean, he would see Jeff occasionally, but he would just mumble like, hi, wouldn't say what he did. Marcel was just trying to be polite. One day he saw that there was also a young Asian woman in her 20s coming out of Jeff's apartment. And here's another weird clue. All she says to Marcel is, I stay here and points to the door. And she watches him leave, Marcel, and then she just slams the door. Now, Marcel put it down to like, well, maybe English isn't her first language. Right. Or maybe she's a B E K and saying something weird, like, here where I domicile. <laughs> like, I stay here. So they're just weird. Well, and and B.E.K., is, just for our listeners. Oh, Black Eyed. kid.
2: Yeah. yeah. Right. We can't go too crazy with the acronyms, just in case, no, no, you know, no. this could be somebody's first episode,
1: <laughs> right? I don't know. That's true. Uh, you'll have to back <laughs> up and hear our BEK series at some point, another scary one for the fans. Uh, in this case, they were just weird, just loners, didn't say much. The other things that he noticed, Marcel, were was that they never went out. They always had food delivered. And they never let anybody look into their apartment. Marcel knew some of the delivery guys. Uh, of course, in New York City, of course, they're always, uh, you know, food delivery guys. So they, they ordered all kinds of stuff, Chinese, Italian, uh, different kinds of takeout and food. It was always delivered. Uh, he didn't know what they did for a living other than maybe they worked on the computer because they were just there all the time. And so then I wonder, like, if they aren't human, what are they doing for work? Do they work somewhere? Where do they get this money? Yeah, How are they financed? And I'll ask David Weatherly about that a little bit here, but this is all just kind of weird uh, vibes from a weird neighbor. And of course it's New York city. So people are going to say like, yeah, of course there's weird people. And there certainly are some until one day when Marcel is in the hallway and he sees the young Asian woman there and she drops a bag of groceries. And so Marcel walks over to help her pick up the stuff and he notices it's all just cans of meat, potted meats, spam, canned fish, whatever it is, just it's all just meats. And he's helping to pick this up. And Jeff comes out of his apartment and he gets very angry. So they're just the weird couple in the apartment building and, and, you know, the other neighbors and, and, uh, Marcel's friends all think so. Nobody knows anything about them. They all are very uh, curt in their responses to people. So, as I said, Marcel had a college friend that delivered pizza to their place a lot, and he said they would never let them look inside. And so they started discussing what's going on here? What are the possibilities? And what's he building in there? And they were talking about the similarities or the uh, characteristics. And, you know, they acted paranoid, but they didn't seem like drug dealers. Because they rarely went out and nobody ever came by except for food delivery guys, and then an incident happened. And I'm gonna read this passage from the from the book. My roommate left again to visit family for the Thanksgiving holiday, so I was alone at the apartment again. It was two days before Thanksgiving. I had come home after having coffee with a couple of friends at a nearby coffee shop, and it was fairly cold, and I was walking quick, getting up the stairs so I can get inside and warm up. I reached my floor and turned the corner quickly into the hallway. There was Jeff and his girlfriend right by their door. It seemed like I really shocked them when I came around the corner. She was carrying a couple of grocery bags and dropped one of them when she saw me. Some of the contents fell out into the hallway. She gave me a really dirty look as if I had caused it. Jeff was fumbling with the keys getting their door unlocked. I tried to smile and apologized, bending down to pick up some of the contents to help her. It was all different kinds of canned meat. I mean, there is nothing else. No bread, no household items, just a bunch of cans of meat. Spam, potted meat, deviled ham, canned fish, you name it. Just as I was trying to help pick the stuff up, Jeff turned, looked down at me, and said in an angry tone, Just leave it! She'll get it! I looked up at him, and I swear, in that moment, his eyes were solid black. No whites in his eyes at all. I realized that the girl was staring at me too, and when I looked over at her, her eyes were solid black, just like his. I was pretty close to her because we were both bending down, picking up stuff. There's no way it was a trick of the light or anything. I just stared at her and looked at those solid black eyes. It was the most disturbing thing. While I was looking at her, I saw her eyes turn back to regular, brown eyes with whites around them. It all must have happened within a few seconds. Suddenly, Jeff had the door open, and they both rushed inside, leaving some of the canned meat on the floor in the hallway. I got into my apartment as quick as I could. I was really shaken up. I had called some of my friends who I was going to see for Thanksgiving, and they'd offered to let me come over and stay a couple of days, and now I decided to take them up on it. I quickly packed a bag and left. When I left the apartment, I noticed that all the canned meat was gone. Perhaps they had slipped out and picked it all up. Well, that's that incident, but that's not over for Marcel, because weirdly, as the story goes, he noticed that there was a side effect, as we mentioned before, as with a lot of these cases. But getting back to this passage and the aftermath of the experience, Marcel said he had a diet heavy in meat, but after this, he couldn't stomach it. As he says, the first thing was that right after seeing the weird-eyed couple, I got sick eating some fried chicken. I was sick throughout the whole holidays. It was tough. I thought it was a case of food poisoning, and it took me several days to recover. I was hardly eating during that time because I just couldn't keep anything down. So what happened after that was that he tries eating regular meals, which is fine unless there's meat in it, which makes him immediately sick. To this day, he has to be a vegetarian, and he doesn't want to be. (laughs) (laughs) he's like, you said, I don't, I didn't intend to be a vegetarian. Uh, It's just a beef, pork, fish. It all makes me sick now. So I've become a vegetarian, even though I didn't want to. So is this some kind of psychological reaction witnessing the strange couple? Is it something they beamed into him? Is there something about seeing the meats? Yeah, that's crazy. Like, yeah. What kind of after
2: effect is that? He's just crossing paths and that's
1: what happens. Yeah. Just coming into... Contact with these beings when they flash that true nature of theirs has a lasting effect, and for me, that's the frightening thing. Because I do enjoy eating meat, and uh, <laughs> I don't want anything about my life to change, really, for the negative. And and with all these people, there's something weird, and it could be paranoia. It could be, uh, as we saw with Robert, a fear of heights now or panic attacks while you're driving. These aren't good encounters, although I desperately would love to see that just visually, just for the experience, but I don't want all the other side effects. But one last point here with this story is that it seems, as in the case with Charlene here and also Marcel, when they get angry and these types of beings, maybe not like the ones that come from the Hawaii story, but these beings, when they get angry, they drop their guard and that's when their true nature comes out and they get really, really angry. And as Marcel wraps up his segment here, he says, I think their anger made them drop their guard. I don't think they were human, but they were hiding in human form. I hope I never experience something like that again. Well, this seems like a good time to get back to our interview
2: with David Weatherly and see what he has to say, not only about that story, but some of the other ones we're going to talk about tonight.
1: Okay, so as we transition from learning about Plain old crocodile reptilians piloting UFOs and performing medical checkups. We then learn of possible reptoid or reptilian creatures trying to pose as human beings and and blend in with our society as best they can, but not totally getting it down. (laughs) But as creepy and scary as the thought that there are technologically superior reptilian aliens flying around and abducting unsuspecting humans. I think even more creepy and disturbing is the thought that there are reptilians, it seems, that are advanced enough that they can affect human uh, coverings, you know, human skin. But what is their purpose with this? Are they just a bizarre unknown species from somewhere else uh, just trying to survive in our world, or are they studying us? Or... Are they just biding their time until their race can make their presence known to humanity as our overlords in their plans for world domination? So what I've noticed with all these accounts in your book is that there's a through line with all these stories. There's a connection, a pattern to this, and perhaps an evolution to it all. And from the possibilities these stories present, maybe even scarier than lizard overlords are the black-eyed beings that are hiding in human form ones that also have human bodily needs, like eating. In these cases, lots of meat. (laughs) And they have money, but how? But the most terrifying question for me anyway is, who are they? What do they want with us? And are they also studying us? Or is there a more diabolical purpose as with the ancient evil spirits?
4: So, I will say one thing uh, as we're moving away from the reptilian question is uh, to sort of bring some of that full circle. It's important to realize that there are ancient drawings of Jinn that depict them as uh, sort of reptilian looking, with clawed hands and sometimes horns and somewhat reptilian slash human looking eyes. So, to me, that was always a curious idea that. We may be talking about something that, uh, you know, one phenomena that maybe can be explained by something else. When we go into the the black-eyed children and even black-eyed adults, we start to go into a somewhat different territory. Uh, To answer your question for us, I think that looking at so many cases of of these uh, BKs manifesting over the years, it seems that their intent is that they are here to uh, feed on energy. And what I mean by that is that, or, or why I say that is this, these kids manifest, uh, first of all, I don't believe they're actual children at all,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
4: but they, they show up and they sort of uh, initiate a sequence of events that leads a person through a few different stages. You know, first of all, there's this kind of basic unease that grows to kind of a panic. The flight mode kicks in. It's not fight or flight, it's just outright flight mode kicks in. And what is that? Well, that's the spike in adrenaline and in fear. Uh, And fear is a very powerful emotion. What I find compelling about this is that in almost every case I can think of, when this level of fear spikes in the victim, these kids vanish. It gives you this sense of, you know, they got what they came for. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not we could argue and say, well, are they somehow feeding on that energy? Or, you know, is it something else? Is it all some kind of grand test that they're taking part in to see how people are going to react, to see how they can adjust it, you know, overall, because, you know, there are so many of these accounts at this point, you know easily thousands at this point, because I hear about these cases all the time. people of course contact me with reports, uh, but there are other investigators who I know actively collect these cases, some of them more actively than I do, and and they hear different stories than the ones I hear, but so many of them are very similar, and you only see a kind of a slow evolution over time. And it, and it's as if slight adjustments are being made or, or slight changes are made just to see what happens. So that's a phenomenon that for me, looking at it overall, I know a lot of people are fascinated by it because they're fascinated by the creep factor of it. But at the same time, I'm kind of more interested in the idea that what exactly is behind this? What kind of experiment, if you will, is underway in the midst of this, because there's certainly something directing it. It's not just to show up for a few minutes and and disappear and that be the end of it. Right. And that's something we don't have an answer to yet.
1: (laughs) Well, that's what I was getting at with the reptilians, is that maybe there is a world domination plan afoot, but it's certainly not from the suburban family doing their weird things behind closed doors and just eating a lot of meat. They don't seem to be going to work anywhere. They're not on the computer. Whereas these other creatures, the black-eyed people, I think also what's more frightening is that the reptilians seem to be more corporeal. They're maybe a shapeshifter. Maybe they have some... Supernatural ability, but these black-eyed people really do. And I think that really unnerves people because they can show up anywhere. As you said in her book, Scott and I always talk about what's really frightening to people. It's like you could say, like, well, this haunted house here, this is really frightening, or this canyon Native Americans won't go into because it's haunted. And you could just say, like, well, I'm not going there then. Well, I'll never have to worry about that. But it's the supernatural that shows up to you wherever you are. And these black-eyed people have shown up on boats. Uh, in apartments, anywhere, day or night. And I think that really unhinges people. And I agree with you. I think there's something there that's um, being tinkered with in regards to our existence. But also the other thing that I've noticed with reptilians and a lot of your black-eyed people stories is that when they get noticed is when they drop their guard and their fallback emotion is anger one girl who was in an argument with uh, her boyfriend and she saw his eyes turn black just for a flash. Mm-hmm. And of course that relationship didn't work out. Nothing really horrible happened, but uh, other than she other was than later made things, into a sandwich, <laughs> things, <laughs> you, you, we don't know the, the, the more uh, fantastical elements to that, but I've heard that myself from people of, uh, they've noticed some people and uh, especially in a flash of anger, that's almost a common trope. So uh, w- w- do you think that the flip side of they're gaining fear on us, and you could tell their intentions aren't good because they have such anger that comes out so quickly?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of different things going on there, and, and we're kind of flipping back and forth between mm-hmm. the, the reptilians and black-eyed children, but
1: uh, a lot of these cases
4: that people believe they're encountering something that is reptilian in nature, for lack of a better description, then... Yeah, these things do seem to get very somewhat unnerved and, of course, angry when they believe they've been uh, found out. And that would, in some ways, harken back to the concept of the jinn. You know, they prefer to stay hidden. So if they are there in some physical form, you know, what I, I mean, maybe that's what people are really seeing. Maybe they're seeing the you know, the true face of the djinn when they're seeing these things. And uh, they don't want to be seen. They don't want attention put on them, certainly the black-eyed children, it's a little bit different because we certainly get into a very different psychological aspect to those encounters. And that's that whenever you mix children and the supernatural, it goes to a whole different level for people. You know, a good example is you can take the the most, you know, hardcore biker dude ghost hunter into a location Mm -hmm. that suddenly you get indications that there's a child spirit trap there and and what happens Their their demeanor completely changes because there's this psychological thing that we have built in as adults, that children are innocent child approaches you and needs help. You know, the odds are you're going to do everything you can to help this kid, even if you don't like kids. You know, you're probably going to say, okay, well, you know, I'll help you find your mother or, you know, whatever's wrong. You know, we're sort of programmed to help children. Well, what happens if you're in that situation and a child shows up asking for help, but all of your personal warning signs are going off that something is really wrong? It's a very unique conflict that occurs in people psychologically. And I think that in itself is what causes a lot of the, the after effects of these encounters. So. You know, we have these cases where these children show up and uh, they create this weird dynamic within people that they're interacting with, and then they vanish. And, and of course, the victim is left to deal with, you know, what in the heck just happened. Yeah, yeah. And and now what? And what does this mean? Because, again, gosh, here we are full loop again because that kind of changes that person's worldview. You know, it really rocks the foundation. Yeah, um, Because now nothing
1: makes sense in, in some terms. This next encounter illustrates David's point because it's about a strange child intruder. And although it's not the B.E.K. kind we've been talking about where a person experiences perhaps an ancient supernatural evil that frightens them to the core of their soul, an encounter with this type of non-human child entity can prove to be more disturbing than scary because... The implications for their visit also provokes an intellectual fear, along with a physical one.
2: Now, this experience happened to a woman named Justine, who in early 2012 was traveling through Colorado on her way to meet her estranged sister, Catherine. Justine was looking for answers as to why her sister had refused contact with her for several years, and she ended up getting a story and an interaction that would profoundly affect her and her sister for the rest of their lives
1: and alter their worldview in the process. I stopped at a gas station to fill up the tank. I'll admit, my mind was a million miles away at the time. With everything that my sister had dropped on me, my thoughts were just racing. I was sort of on autopilot when I pulled up to the pump and got out of the car. I ran my credit card, put the nozzle in, and started pumping gas. All of a sudden, I realized there was a young girl standing there. She was near the front of my car on the little island where the pumps sit. Even though I was distracted, I don't know how I missed seeing her when I pulled up. She was wearing a cream-colored dress that looked rather old to me. I thought, well, it's Sunday. Maybe she's been to church. I don't even know why I was thinking about it. She was standing there staring at me, and I looked right at her. She had the most startling blue eyes that I have ever seen. I think her pupils must have been really large, and it made her eyes look oversized. I couldn't even see any whites in her eyes from where I was, just that bright blue. She looked fairly normal otherwise. Her hair was very pale blonde, and her skin was extremely white, as if she never got any sun. I said hello to her, but instead of saying hi back, she said, We're halfway there. I wondered what in the world she meant by that. I said to her, I don't understand. I looked around, expecting to see a car on the other side of the island because her parents had to be around. There was no one there. The little girl was still looking at me, and she said, Your sister Catherine will understand. It's for all of us. It gave me a chill. I let go of the gas nozzle and started to walk towards her. She didn't move, but I only took a couple of steps before I felt like I shouldn't go any closer. All of a sudden... I was kind of afraid. I stepped back and put the nozzle back in the pump and opened my car door. The little girl, still watching me, said again, we're halfway there. Just at that moment, a pickup truck pulled up at the pumps to my right. I looked over and saw an older man get out of his truck. I I called out, excuse me, and he turned towards me saying, yeah, and I glanced toward the little girl. I just wanted this man to see her and see if she would say something to him and she was gone. I looked around, and she was nowhere in sight. I turned back towards the man with my mouth hanging open. He was just looking at me. I knew he hadn't seen the girl. I muttered that I was sorry, jumped in my car, and drove away. Justine was very shaken by her encounter at the gas station. When she calmed down, she called her sister and told her about the little girl who had mentioned her by name. You've seen a hybrid, Catherine told her. Justine had been introduced to the concept of alien-human hybrids during the weekend with her sister.
2: Yeah. And and there's more to that story. Get David's book if you want to read it in its entirety. But that's a little chunk of it that really, of course, stood out to us
1: and would stand out to anybody. It's a pretty crazy story. You and I always talk about uh, bits of evidence that you get, and we are discussing that as well with David, asking him, uh, what do you make of that? And so you can only go by what we see and what is told to us. And in this case, it was a clear statement. Now, what I liked about it is like, yeah, it's not essentially scary in that she didn't have totally black eyes. She had uh, attractive blue eyes, but odd, off, not totally human. Something is definitely off about them. That uncanny valley where it's almost human, but there's something wrong with it. And even though she approached her, she got that feeling, that's it, stop right there. Yeah, But more so for me, apart from just the odd sight that this girl would have well, that she disappeared. She came out of nowhere, just disappeared with no parents around is what she said. And ever since I read that story in the book, I've been thinking about what it means maybe, and that it's for all of us. And whatever that is, we're halfway to it, at least in 2012.
2: Yeah, either that or she was riding in her trunk and she got out to tell her, hey, we're halfway to your sister's house.
1: (laughs) Oh, stop with these really complicated scenarios to justify all this craziness. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. So, well, we can't leave this section without a classic story that chills all of us to the bone. And we have one right here. And this is a classic tale. Now, all of our listeners and Scott and I, and of course, David Weatherly are all familiar with now. It's a classic black eyed kid encounter. And this one comes from Chuck, who was living in a house in a quiet suburb west of Dallas, Texas, in April of 2012. Chuck had just run to the store for 30 minutes early one evening to pick up some groceries for his wife when he was met at his front door by what at first looked like a 14 year old boy.
2: I had run up to the store to get a few things that my wife asked for. I was only gone about a half an hour. I pulled my truck up into the driveway, got the two bags, and headed for the front door. There wasn't anyone around, I'd swear. We have a small set of steps that go up to the front door. I had the two bags in one hand, and I opened the front door with the other. We're pretty far out from the city and sometimes don't lock the doors if we're just running an errand. Just as I pushed the door open, I heard somebody speak to my right. It scared the hell out of me, and I jerked my hand back from the door, just leaving it open. There was this boy standing there wasn't up on the steps. He was beside them in the yard. I swear he must have come out of nowhere. He was wearing one of those hoodies with the hood pulled up. It was gray and he was wearing some jeans. The weird thing was what he said. He asked me, is it food time? I mean, who asked a question like that? I, I, don't, I didn't even know what to say. I just <laughs> stood there trying to figure out who this kid was. I'd never seen him before and I knew all the folks around us. Then he spoke again. It's food time. You should invite me in. Well, I thought he was looking at the plastic bags I had and maybe saw the ribs I had in there, but it was such a strange question. I was thinking, this kid's not coming in my house. <laughs> Just then, I heard my dog barking. I could hear him running through the house toward the front door. My dog is a three-year-old pit bull that I raised from a pup. He's well-trained, and he's never once not listened to my commands. He's a great guard dog, and he won't back down from anything or anyone. I've seen this dog kill a rattlesnake before. I watched my dog turn the corner into the living room at a run. We've got wooden floors, and it was like all of a sudden, the dog tried to put his brakes on. He slid across the floor to the door and almost fell over himself getting turned around. He went from full attack mode to scared to death mode in a matter of seconds. He tucked his tail, put his head low, and ran away whining. I've never seen this dog whine like that in my life, and I'd never seen him act scared of anything. Seeing him act like that scared the hell out of me. I looked back at the kid, and he was looking up at me with a little smile. That's when I saw his eyes. They were solid black. No whites in that kid's eyes. Something about this creepy-looking kid had scared my dog, and now I was feeling scared myself. I got in the door as quick as I could and slammed it shut behind me. I went to the kitchen and put the bags down. I realized that I was shaking. I don't know what it was about that kid, but
1: it really shook me up. Classic. Yeah, classic Bek story and classic description about a fourteen-year-old boy, same kind of clothes, always with the hoodie. Yeah, hopefully one of ours. I would love to see a a, a, hear a story that they're they're wearing our holiday merch. (laughs) And of course, one of the things that sticks out to us is that statement. What do you mean by that? Well, here as we've come to learn, they don't really get our devices and our way of life, our items. They understand we we have to eat. And as the stories we heard previously tonight, other black-eyed beings do seem to eat, but maybe these don't. I think there are a variety of entities that flash with those black eyes that some open their mouths and there's nothing but a a pit of darkness in there. And some are more real than others in in a way. Some are more uh, physical and don't maybe know what they're hiding inside, but they're harboring inside. Some know exactly what they're doing to you. Like this kid with a little smile, he knows he's scared the crap out of that dog. And he knows he's scaring this guy to the core. It's often with the same symptoms. In this case, Chuck was really, really rattled. If you read the rest of the story of the book, you know, he was scared to death. But this dog is the one who really suffered the PTSD. You know, we're talking about, what, a three-year-old pity who's fearless and just looking at this kid shocked him. Yeah. Well, the wife... Came and said, What happened to the dog? Like, he, he won't come out from under the bed. He's just whining. What's wrong with him? Like, he's never scared of anything. Chuck tried to pull him out. And he would just whine. And then he, when he did get him out from under the bed, he would just go back under again. Mm-hmm. And this dog did this for the next several days and nights. And he only went outside when he needed to. And Chuck said it took several weeks for the dog's behavior to return to normal. And he told David Weatherly that he felt the dog never fully recovered from what frightened him. Yeah. I mean, that's the point at which, if my dog did that, I would be like, I would
2: actually might take it a little bit positively. I would be like, okay, good. You see him too, right? You saw, you saw the kid. I just want to make sure I'm not the only right. one seeing this. You clearly are seeing him. However, I'm going to take it from your actions that I should probably move away from this yeah.
1: thing. Yeah, get, get in <laughs> step the Step away, yeah, step away. Kids and animals sense things that uh, us humans, rational, logical thinking adults, skeptical adults, will say, well, that's impossible. It's just a kid. And even if he has totally black eyes. He spent uh, $450 on full sclera black contacts, which he's just going around the neighborhood scaring people with, because that's got to be the explanation. But here we have adults that are rational, as we've heard tonight, that beyond any mundane pedestrian explanation that they can come up to soothe themselves with... Feel it in the core of their being. And that's the immutable part that we can't shake. And that's the um, ineffable part that can't be described, where I can't tell you what that feeling is like. You're going to have to feel it for yourself. And you're not going to believe me until you do. Although we have empathy for that. And uh, it's not something I ever want to feel. What can we take from the bits of information from? what these things actually say to us, because a lot of times uh, some of these beings don't say anything at all. Uh, The reptilians don't seem to have much to say other than hissing at us. But here, there's one uh, subchapter called, uh, it's about Justine, a woman who is traveling in Colorado with uh, going to meet her sister Catherine. And so just to sum up that story, uh, the idea is that this woman is going to meet her sister that she finds out is an abductee, which she pulls over at a gas station a being that most people would describe as possibly an alien human hybrid girl. Those are very typical: uh, pale blonde or very uh, light hair, piercing blue eyes that are oversized. And she says something to Justine that I think is very telling, and it it may point to the bigger picture. And all she says to her is, "We're halfway there." And Justine says, "Why? I don't understand. What do you What do you mean?" And she says, "Your sister Catherine will understand. It's for all of us." So David do you think that that is pointing to a larger alien human hybrid agenda?
4: It goes back to that that sort of consciousness behind things again yes. doesn't
1: it because you know we're we're looking at
4: um a very strange set of circumstances of course this woman this is a very fascinating encounter simply Because the woman who had the experience, she wasn't interested in UFOs or any of this, you know, uh, Mm. I think she called it alien stuff, you know, or whatever she uh, refers to it. And she has this very unsettling encounter uh, with this little girl who comes up and and says this, you know, and, and I remember the witness telling me, you know, that she just she really got the chills when this happened because she felt very unsettled by what is seemingly an, an innocent uh, comment. Yeah. And the girl kind of, you know, vanishes very quickly um, as soon as the, the woman turns around or whatever. So it's something that we can take on a lot of levels. You know, this situation has her sister told her later, you know, you witnessed a hybrid, an alien-human hybrid. And, you know, that's sort of a whole, it's almost a subculture of uh, people certainly sort of a a subset of the ufo field that you've got a a good portion of people that believe these alien hybrids are being created whether it's to save their race or infiltrate ours right various ways you could look at it that would be very disturbing yeah but it's fascinating to hear an account from a woman who is very much sort of outside of all of this if you will who's suddenly thrown into the middle of it with a very bizarre set of circumstances and a world-changing event that took place with something so very, very simple. And if we look at the context, as you guys were talking about earlier, and mm-hmm. put it within the events of, of things that were happening to her and her sister, then we could say, yeah, this could be seen as something very intense. And my God, how do we calculate that out? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. What, what, are we on a time clock? I mean, what exactly is <laughs> going on here?
1: Yeah. If we're halfway there, what's the second half going to be like? What can we expect with that? And then what's the end result? Um, uh,
4: maybe we're seeing
1: it. Yeah. Again, this can go back to John Keel and Indrid Cold and things said to uh, Woody Derenberger. There is a real misunderstanding from these purportedly much more intelligent beings than us and that they just don't get us. And so what I love is taking these phrases like we're halfway there or something kind of weird that that's said and trying to find meaning in it. And so in one encounter, it's one of the stories that that I really liked here is the black-eyed young boy that shows up to Chuck's house, who's living outside of the Dallas area. And uh, Chuck had just come back from the grocery store. And this is what I love about it. It's like, what clue can we take from this? And that Chuck just comes back with two bags of uh, groceries. He turns around, a boy is just suddenly there, about 14, and he asks Chuck, is it food time? It's food time. You should invite me in. That is so classic B-E-K. We we could say there, but is it food time? And it's so out of left feel like Chuck doesn't even know how to respond. And then the other one is, uh, it ties in with one of Scott's favorite sayings is, uh, may we come in and use your telegraph? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think that, um, Part of their mission is to try and understand us, or they just don't care. They just want to get to the, the soul energy sucking.
4: I don't really think it's a, a lack of understanding. It could mm-hmm. be, you know, for lack of a better terms, maybe a, a flaw in the program, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it's like a lot of the cases, and this is something to share in in common with the men in black, in that you get these encounters where it seems like they're just not current on, yeah. you know yeah. how we operate in the world I mean who says is it food time that's <laughs> that's right. not a common phrase anywhere so yeah you know equally we see things there's a case where they didn't had no idea what a doorbell was there's situations where they show up um, in old-fashioned clothing you know some people describe it as Amish or you know this is uh, just doesn't fit in with current times you know there's the the famous miB story where the the man in black doesn't know what to do with a jello you know, so <laughs> right, right. It gives you this sense of there's some overall consciousness behind this, but maybe it's kind of operating on old information, or yeah. there's some kind of lag in exactly how they translate once they they get into our world. And right. um yeah. I think to a certain degree, it shows a, a certain amount of vulnerability on their part. Yeah, um, but also, of course, um, it's almost like a crack in the reality because it's saying, okay. This would be a lot more frightening, maybe if the, you know <laughs> yeah, if, uh, yeah. if this guy knew what this jello was you know it, it's, <laughs> now it's, now it 's just weird because he 's trying to drink it, it gives you the sense of wow, these things, whatever they are, might be really powerful, but they sure aren 't perfect, and they sure don 't have everything down to a science
1: right there 's a disconnect there that maybe is not important to them, but something else I found interesting and in the foreword that Micah talks about, going back to the entity Mr. Apol communicating with John Keel or through uh, his associate, Jay Parrow, uh, I believe. And then something that was interesting is that, yes, he he wrote, Mr. Apol wrote his answers as best he could in red pencil, very awkwardly, almost scrawled because he and his kind don't have writing and don't have language like ours. And then I was wondering, like, well, it's such a basis for basic communication. What do you mean they don't have a, at least a form of their own writing that they cannot read and they cannot write? And I thought, like, if you or a being that has always communicated telepathically and you have access to knowledge from the past, the present, and sometimes maybe the future or a possible future, then does that totally rule out the need for any kind of reading or writing?
4: You know, it's something I've pondered myself because... Right know, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about entities that are, you know, are they flawed? You know, is is there something that happened that they lost their language or or their written language, or is it because they are so connected uh, to a different level of consciousness that that they simply don't need that? Are they in some kind of a a weird, you know, are they all operating on the cloud, so to speak, you know, where everything's accessible? Uh, We could argue that from a lot of different directions because, you know, if that's the case. Why would they even bother with us? What exactly is it they want?
1: One thing I noticed, again, coming from a statement, uh, and it was the anecdote by Shannon, a professional massage therapist. She has somebody who is seemingly a black-eyed person who is a client for two years every Thursday, and he works possibly at a place that doesn't exist. Again, going back to where is he getting his money for this? (laughs) A weekly appointment standing for two years, and apparently he just enjoys a good therapeutic massage. Uh, other than he's not- Well, who doesn't? Well, that's what I'm saying. There's a physical aspect to this. There's a <laughs> there's a there's uh, something that they enjoy about the physicality of it, but they're not perfect. And so it seems that they attempt mind control, like a lot of black eyed children or that form, and then the adults as well, where the massage therapist, Shannon, she notices like, oh my gosh, this guy has completely black eyes gets overwhelming fear and screams at the guy, get out, get out now. And he just replies, you didn't see anything. Everything is fine. In a monotone voice, everything is fine. You should relax. You didn't see what you thought you saw. Without her saying like, oh my gosh, you're a black eyed person. He knew. He was self-aware of, of uh, what he was doing. And he tried this mind control. It didn't work. Kind of like the black eyed children. It's like, you're going to let us in, it is food time. Or the children showing up, with the mom in the hospital. It's like, you're going to invite us in and it doesn't work. Do you think that's just another disconnect or is it possibly the person that it's, it's not working on and some people it does work on?
4: Oh, I think it's absolutely a person. You know, there's various cases where people report the sensation that these entities are trying to exert an influence, you know, whether, it's, whether they equate it to hypnosis or, you know, mind control or some other type of influence. And, you know, some people, as we know, just aren't susceptible to that these uh, entities, whatever these things are, you know, they don't necessarily take into account the uh, variables with individuals, you know, because they have had certain levels of success. So, you know, running into someone that the standard program doesn't quite work on, that throws them a bit off balance. And of course, they have to try to to reassert control or they simply have to get away, you know, just vanish, however that occurs. Right. So I think that it certainly is the individual, uh, the individual's level of perception and mental strength, perhaps, and, uh, you know, who knows what else, that allows them to endure whatever these things are trying to project.
1: There's a story that you relay in the book that comes from a psychic and paranormal investigator named Christina George. And it is about a black-eyed family or something of a family unit with a very strange appearance. In that story, the strange uh, hippie lady with the two 10-year-olds, mismatched 10-year-olds, when Christina, the psychic investigator, finally gets up enough courage and gets over her tremendous fear and runs out there and says, you know, can I help you? Is there anything I can do for you? And the reply from the woman comes: No, we're done. And that's after seeing them holding hands, swaying, and possibly chanting, which is another strange variation of Black-eyed people behavior. I've never heard of that before. What are you done with? What What do you mean you're done? What What were you doing? What's the point of that? Um, what do you think about that story? Oh, I think that's everybody's question. What yeah. What are they done with? You know,
4: I mean, right. Uh, yeah, you know, that was one of those. It was, it was a fascinating account. Of course, it um, it came to me. Christina had the experience in 2012, which was the year that the Black Eyed Children, the first edition of it, came out. So mm. um, it was significant for me because uh, this is one of those phenomena that every time you think, OK, I sort of know the standard encounters. You know, I know, you know what this person is likely to tell me they experience, you know, with a few small variations. But then... You know, you'll get one that comes out of the field like this one with, a, you know, what appears to be some kind of bizarre black eyed family, you know, manifesting. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think it's significant because it's a clear indication that whatever this is behind these encounters, it does continue to evolve to some degree. And, and yeah. again, it's like it's testing different concepts, you know, or different approaches Right. Uh, so that's not one that I have seen or, or heard repeated anywhere, uh, anything similar to that. But it is certainly one of the unique cases that's come along over the years. And um, and I just, I, I don't know what to do with that. What, yeah, exactly. What are they done with now? Not everything because they keep showing yeah. up. So,
1: yeah, it, it, it goes on. But to what you just said, I, I kind of like to read a passage here which I think sums this up. And uh, you could tell us your thoughts if you have any ab- about it later, but I'll just read this towards the end of the uh, the subchapter here. And, and that is, whatever the message is, the message seems to be evolving. And so the passage goes, uh, John, a man who has encountered both a B.E.K. and a black-eyed adult believes we're seeing the unfolding of some sinister plan. Quote, I believe that. Whatever these things are, they've been here all along around us, even though we haven't known about it. I just don't think that they care as much about hiding anymore. That makes me very, very nervous because it feels like they're moving forward with their intent at a much quicker pace. I don't know exactly what that intent is, but I'll bet there's nothing good about it. My two encounters were disturbing and I'm even more concerned about what's in store for us all if these things decide they want their presence known on a large scale. Laugh all you want, but the world is changing and I believe that these things are going to continue to be a bigger part of it. Do you think this is heading for... Some bigger, uh, globally disturbing reveal from these beings.
4: You know, I, I think in some ways we could argue that that is unfolding to some degree, couldn't we? Because yeah. you know, there's, there's constantly talk about disclosure. You know, for years now, yeah. I have long been an advocate that disclosure is going to happen, just as as an evolving process, more within people's consciousness than than from a government saying, okay, we admit it, you know, there's, <laughs> there's UFOs yeah. and there's aliens and all these things. So, you know, I think what we're seeing is a constantly evolving acceptance amongst a greater portion of the population that, you know what, whether they're extraterrestrial or interdimensional or whatever, there's something else going on here that we all need to kind of think about. I would argue that we're, you know, well underway, in disclosure, and that means we're well underway in the path of whatever these entities have planned on a grand scale. Whether that's something good or whether it's uh, you know going to culminate with a tall guy holding a, a cookbook that says to serve man. <laughs> I just
1: recently saw that episode. <laughs> oh,
4: yeah. we've, we've yet to discover. <laughs>
0: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Bloomingdale's, Levi's, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first realized store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom
4: Hi, I'm Nikki from Mothman Country, and when I'm not crocheting liners for my tinfoil
1: hats, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. In the summer of 2012, myself and a few members of my paranormal group had went up to see a client reporting being abducted, having an implant, as well as experiencing paranormal activity in the Redding, California area. That area is known for UFO sightings as well as all kinds of strange activity. We got there and spent the whole day going through medical paperwork as well as obtaining electronic readings and pics. We finished up our investigation, where we all seemed to experience some kind of activity. I got home later that day, and I had decided to go to the store with my roommate. Now, before I go any further, let me tell you this about my roommate so you can better comprehend what I am about to explain to you. I have been friends with him for over 20 years. He likes his privacy, and in fact, our home is at the end of a dead-end road that is backed up to a greenbelt, along with its own hill and creek down below just outside my door. We do not answer our door to unannounced visits, and if he does answer it, he will let you know he is not happy about it. He also does not like when people are around our house since there is no reason to be on our property. So this is where the story gets weird. We are driving back up to our home and standing on our grass in front of our house were three people. An older woman who was maybe about 45, brown eyes, as a long hippie-like maid dress that was all wrinkled and some different colored sandals. Then there was a little African-American girl, about 10 years old. Her hair was not combed. She had mismatched shorts and a t-shirt, also wrinkled. But she was very pale and almost looked sick and skinny and had a very dry and ashy appearance. And the third was a young boy, about 10 years of age, with a very blonde, bowl-cut hair with bags straight across, and again with mismatched shorts and shirt. But what really stood out was his pale white skin and piercing blue eyes. So as we pull up and open our garage and park in front of it, my roommate says, Who the hell are those people? I look, but I have no idea who these people are. I know just about every person in our subdivision, and I have never seen them. They were standing on our grass as if they were waiting for us. My roommate says I will be right back. I'm going to find out why they're here and who they're looking for. I agreed and watched from the car as he walks over and starts talking to them. I'm watching as he has his hand on his hips and then drops them to his side. He turns around, walks back with no expression on his face, gets in the car, turns it back on and pulls into the garage and closes the door. I ask, who were they? what do they want? He replies in a very monotone voice, they are looking for some feral kittens, which I found very strange since I have seen no kittens anywhere around the area. But what I found even more strange was the fact that he seemed to be okay with that answer and did not ask them to leave. I said, why didn't you tell them to leave? In which he replied, it's okay, don't worry about it and then exited the car, went into the house, and went down into his room without saying another word to me. I entered the house on the main floor and go upstairs, but had a really weird feeling I just could not shake about what had just taken place, so I went back down the stairs to the main floor of the house to the window I have next to my door and I peeked through the blinds to see if these people were really looking for kittens, or if they were even still outside. I look through the blinds, and I see the woman standing on the side of the hill outside with one child on each side of her holding their hands, and as if they could sense that I was looking at them, they all three turned their heads and bodies around in perfect sync and looked dead at me. Now, if that wasn't scary enough, I look and see that they all three now have completely black eyes with no whites visible at all. I remember it made their eyes look so big and scary. I was so terrified I jumped away from the blinds, hitting my back on the door handle of the coat closet behind me hard. I looked again to make sure I wasn't imagining it, only to see them still there staring. I screamed for my roommate and when he didn't come I ran downstairs to the lower level of the house and banged on his door yelling his name with no answer. I could hear what sounded like the shower going and I thought to myself, how weird, why is he taking another shower? I run back upstairs, not knowing what to do, trying to calm myself down. I finally calm down and get the courage to go back to the blinds and peek through them. I now see that they have moved. They are near a tree, standing in a circle, holding hands. They are swaying back and forth, and I can hear them saying what sounded almost like a chant. I hear and see them, and at that moment again, they all turn in unison and look directly at me again seeing a closer look at them and they still have completely black eyes with no whites visible once again I get this overwhelming feeling of fear come over me I run downstairs again and start banging on my roommate's door with no response and now I have no idea what to do I remember telling myself come on Christina, you are a paranormal investigator people come to you because of stuff like this and you're never afraid so why are you so damn scared now? I somehow snap myself out of it and grab the doorknob, turn the handle and I yank the door open forcefully, walking out the door, looking right at them and saying, can I help you with something? They look over at me, drop their hands, and the woman looks at me and says, no, we're done. I was confused for a minute and I asked, did you find the kittens? But they said nothing and walked off. I went in the house to try and get my roommate again, and this time he is coming up the stairs as I am coming in, and I yelled to him, Come here! Those people had black eyes! They were holding hands and chanting. They knew I was looking at them along with many other things. He asked me where they were, and I said, Come on! They just walked away! We ran outside and down our walkway, and they were gone. I even jumped in my car and drove around the subdivision because there was only one way in and one way out. But to my disappointment, I found no one. It troubled me for a very long time. I later spoke to my team and found out they were all reporting their own experiences of paranormal activity since returning from this client's house, but none like mine. I then contacted a good friend of mine, Anthony Sanchez, and told him about what had happened to me, and he quickly told me he thought I had an encounter with what is called the Black-Eyed Children. I was initially intrigued and started doing some research, but quickly felt that maybe this wasn't what I experienced because of the differences in other reportings and mine. First, they did not knock on my door and ask to come in. Second, I saw the color of their eyes, which were originally brown, and the little boy had blue, and then they changed. And third, I couldn't find any reportings of them holding hands or chanting. I did feel a little defeated, but knew nonetheless what I had experienced that day was real. But now, I needed to figure out what this is and what it means. Well, we couldn't
2: let David go without having him tell a personal experience story that he had. And not not everybody gets to have these. He has a couple of them, but we wanted him to tell this one. There was a couple of reasons for it. One, as you'll hear, is it takes place in the state that I am currently living in. <laughs> so I, I immediately wanted to find out uh, where this is going. I can tell you there's a lot of freaky roads here in North Carolina. Yeah. That you, when you yeah. get turned around, it's not hard to imagine something like this happening.
1: Deep in the woods kind of roads.
2: Yeah, this is a Grinning Man story. And and we've been talking about Grinning Man stories since we started the show. Obviously, the the original Grinning Man in a lot of ways is Indrid Cold, connected to the Mothman incident. But there are other Grinning Men that are more mysterious and there's not so much interaction with. You just see yeah. them, you happen to see them and you don't really get a chance to necessarily... Reconnect with them or, or find out what makes them
1: tick. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what was different. And I'm cautious about lumping old Mr. Cold in there because I think he was just trying to smile and, and, uh,
2: but he did have an impossible grin, your words, oh, your oh, exact words. No, you called well, it an impossible grin.
1: Yes. But I use the word impossible, uh, meaning more these other ones where I've heard one of the creepiest men in black stories I've ever heard. Uh, it's in a TV documentary, but this guy showed up at his house pasty white skin and like a bowling ball shaped head just round and he said the the smile almost literally went from ear to ear i Mm -hmm. mean we always say that but like no it was that wide where it's like no one's mouth is that wide like venom yeah and the creepy (laughs) thing about this is that and i might be conflating uh two of these stories but one of the encounters he said that the guy didn't say anything it was a man in black dressed in black black hat and everything but his eyes just went back and forth like one of those kitty wall clocks, like with Felix. Mm-hmm. They just went back and forth robotically. He said nothing. And the guy goes, well, I just, I guess I'm going to close the door now. Thank you. I that was it. And it just creeped the heck out of him, as it would me as well. But is it weird that they say something like, you just saw the planet Venus. Can I use your telegraph? Or when they just say nothing and their eyes just yeah i'm you know, voting and for and none forth, of the so. above i vote for none of the above yeah i do want to see it though i mean that, that yes some of these i know I, i'm uh, i'm capricious with my uh wanting to see some things and maybe not others and you can't pick or choose they just happen to you but yeah that's a weird one and you know the story with uh i'll just say from the last story that was read when she asked them christina george you know can i help you with anything and they say no we're done like, what were you doing the noted
2: personal experience that you had in my home state, our home state of North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, with a grinning man, which we we skipped over talking about that, so we could save this story for last. Our listeners are obviously familiar with uh, the grinning man. We've mentioned the grinning man many times and talked about Indrid Cold in our own series on the Mothman. And Forrest
1: has butchered your own story about five times on the show. So come on, that that was on Jim Harold's uh, <laughs> program. <laughs> Six years ago now, or, yeah. or or five, and so it's always stuck with me because I, again, this is before I, I really knew who David was. I just like this is this guy's really interesting and yeah. yeah so
2: we, can you share this story with us? The what what happened?
4: Yeah, sure. So oh, this was in uh, the nineteen eighties, and at the time, I had a friend, a good friend of mine, that uh, we used to spend a lot of time sort of exploring, you know, back roads around the area and. <laughs> The guy's name was Tom, and he always uh, he always professed that I, I was a magnet for weird things because <laughs> you know we we would just go out exploring, and, and odd you know strange things would happen, and um, you know arguably I think that uh, that's probably true, uh, but I, I think <laughs> that there's a. a Another side to the coin too, and it's that the combinations of certain people make it more likely for strange things to happen. So, you know, I've I've investigated with a wide range of people over the years. And, you know, some people have been in the most reportedly haunted or, or you know, otherwise active locations or UFOs or cryptos or whatever, nothing's happened. And, you know, on other occasions, uh there have been people that I've investigated with and and things have just been crazy. So I think again, it's that uh another aspect of that dynamic of how we contribute and how we are participating in whatever is unfolding around us and uh on this particular occasion early 80s uh, we were traveling in a rural part of eastern north carolina and uh tom was driving uh we were in an area that really is, is not many houses back there they're kind of few and far between and as we're cruising along, it's you know, just had been an uneventful, you know, interesting day, but nothing in particular. And uh, we were on a winding road as we approached a curve. Uh, we were coming around the curve, and uh, I looked out the uh, on my side of the vehicle, and I saw there was someone standing, a figure standing on the right side of the road. Now, this was unusual because of where we were. <laughs> you just you never saw people out there. But as we started to get closer i realized there was something very bizarre about this figure because it was late summer warm time of year but this guy was wearing a long coat and a hat and initially i'm thinking what why is this guy out here and what's he you know why is he dressed like that and a number of strange things seemed to happen as this was unfolding because it sort of kind of unfolded in slow motion almost you know um I thought maybe at first that Tom had just let off the gas some, you know, because it seemed like we were slowing down. And as we passed this figure, I got a good look at him. It's an old-fashioned long coat with a, a formal kind of a top hat. And <laughs> he had gloves. Uh, he had a glove, at least on his right hand, because his right hand was held up and it was just under his chin. And he, he was kind of rubbing his thumb and fingers together. And The one thing that was visible in the undergarments was a a very shiny, large belt. The creepiest thing about this was that he had an absurdly large grin. And, you know, the first thing that came to mind in the 1980s, the first thing that came to my mind was the Joker, you know, from Batman comics, you know, this absurdly large grin that just didn't seem humanly possible in any way. What happened to sort of move the story along is that, you know, I felt like we kind of coasted by this guy. And, you know, of course, I watched him first through the windshield, and then I'm looking at him from the passenger side window as we went past him. And as soon as we were past him, I whipped around in the other direction so I could look out the back window of the vehicle you would think this was bizarre enough already, but it became stranger because as quick as I turned you know, to my left to look out the back window, uh, this guy, whatever he was, he was in a completely different position because now he was standing in the middle of the, the road watching us. So he had turned around and completely changed his position. He's now standing on, on the pavement and, and watching us pull away. You know, of course, <laughs> dual reactions uh, occur after this because we <laughs> we get around the curb, and I'm immediately telling Tom to stop the car. You know, I want you to know, turn around. You know, turn uh, around. I want to see this guy, and and he's screaming, "Oh, this is you know, that guy's some psycho. You know, it's a slasher. or, You know, who was <laughs> he doing out here? You know, this this always happens when I'm with you. You know. <laughs> Just, so, you know, a, a brief argument kind of in ensues and he, he finally says, All right, well, you know, we'll turn around, and go part way and see if he's still there. I'm like, Okay. So, you know, Tom turns the car around and he starts reapproaching. He's like, We're not going all the way there, you know. I'm like, Okay, you know, just <laughs> go to where we can see this thing. And of course he gets close enough, uh you know where he's comfortable not going any further, and I jumped out of the car. So, you know, like, because we can't see this guy anywhere, you know he's not there. And I, of course, I jumped out of the vehicle and, and ran actually on the road itself, you know, to the pavement, and and went back to the location. And uh, Tom did not dump me out there. He ended up <laughs> waiting. He he got a bit closer, you know, but uh, I had to investigate this situation further, and I went up to the spot where this guy had been standing and, uh, you know, there's nothing. I I looked in the the area where he had been standing on the side of the road, it's tall weeds, but there's no indication and there's no footprints. There's no nothing. You know, the, of course, the grass kind of looked like someone had been standing there. It was very heavy grass. So, you know, it wouldn't have been prints anyway, but, uh, it looked like, um, you know, someone had been standing there. So it sort of gave me this sense, wow, there's some kind of evidence, even though, not really, but then there was also this very odd smell in the area because it felt like a i or smell like an an electrical odor almost, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you know what I mean by that. So yeah, like a
2: hot iron or ozone or
4: yeah, sort of like an ozone, you know, like an, that electrical, you know, smell. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, you know, I immediately looked around and there was for some reason I had this sense that, you know, was it something, you know, electrical wine or a transformer or something. There was nothing like that in that area. So you know, I glanced around the area and, and you know, eventually uh, got back in the <laughs> the car and, you know, Tom quickly uh, sped off from the area. But um, it was such a bizarre experience and, you know, there's just no way really to fully convey the weirdness of seeing this creature, uh, you know, or whatever it was, you know, it's human. But just was so far out of bounds and just so beyond the normal and, and so beyond, you know, something that you would expect to see out there in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and of course, there are a few other strange things that happened in the aftermath of that occurrence too.
2: Yeah. the, the light, So there was a lightning strike and a small house fire, right?
4: Yeah. That and, was, uh, you know, that was after I got home. And then uh, Tom called me, uh, I was an hour or so later and told me that the house next door to his had been struck by lightning and caught fire. Tom said it was just very bizarre because he was, Saw you know, sparks like fly off the, the building when it got hit. You know, the fire department was able to get there in time, but it was just, uh, I was just, you know, such a bizarre thing. And then, and actually, and beyond that, there was another incident because uh, some people that I knew had a UFO sign the same night in the area. And this was uh, in the vicinity of um, where Tom lived. So very, very bizarre things.
1: Yeah. And you have a, a strong feeling, they were definitely connected all these incidents.
4: Well, sure. I mean, it was, you know, it's just, it wasn't, it was a bit too much coincidence to just yeah. <laughs> brush it off and say, Oh, right. okay. Well, you know, whatever. Um, right. You know, I, I ended up, of course I went back to the area, you know, I, uh, I spent a lot of time digging in and trying to find, you know, something else from that area. You know, that did I did a turn up, a some other UFO reports in the area and, um, you know, it was It was actually John Keel. You know, I approached him with the case at one point and uh, told him what had happened. And,
1: mm.
4: you know, he basically said, well, you, you got to go back and look more. You'll find something else. And, of course, that was one of those incidents that I thought, you know, this guy's not listening to me. You know,
1: <laughs> I, told him, you know
4: <laughs> I told him what I found. And uh, sure enough, I, I dug into it more and ended up finding, yeah, you know, there's some other strange things that happened in the area. So hmm. what
1: what year was this?
4: Nineteen eighty.
1: Okay. Do you think that you, as you rounded the bend, you just happened to catch this guy doing his thing, or do you think he was there to greet you?
4: I have thought both of those things at different times over the years, and I honestly just, I just can't say. You know, you were asking about Scott. You were asking about you know events that uh, caused a fundamental change Mm -hmm. earlier, and you know that was certainly one of them because. That was a, an incident that really kind of came out of nowhere. And, and, you know, in some ways, it's one of the, the last things, even if you're investigating this stuff, it's one of the last things you would probably expect to see. Right. A lot of people, they don't know what a grinning man is. And, you know, if you're going to expect to see something investigating within this field, it's probably going to be, I don't know, about Bigfoot or a alien gray or something that's much more common. So, you know, the fact that it was something from that was very obscure In many ways, I made it all the more significant in a lot of ways.
1: Again, a lot of commonalities like what is with the belt? It's always there's always a Uh, a big, shiny, weird, uh, grotesque belt that's associated. But and then the the hat. And then in this particular case, that's another through line again uh, uh, through the book is that there are variations, but some definite common characteristics in that uh, with this subset of beings, it's the grin that does not immediately put you at ease, or maybe it's not meant to. I mean, we, we had a story, uh, it's one of the, actually it's the very first thing we ever recorded. Paula Pell, one of Scott's dear family friends, comedy writer had a, uh, an encounter with a, you could call it a demonic, maybe even um, a human gin like being, not a black-eyed person, but this was in a cafe at uh, three in the morning in, in Manhattan. It flashed her and her friend a sick smile, it had that self-awareness, like, I know what kind of reaction I'm giving you, and uh, it pleases me. It had the desired effect. So that wasn't, it was a smile, but a sinister smile, not meant to put them at ease. Who knows? Maybe it was, and it just, of course, it's not working because the fear emanating from this person was so intense, they both had to run out of there, not telling you each other, what was going on, but finding out later, like, yeah, I we both noticed this person was just pure badness. Uh, but in this case, uh, you didn't get a sense of I sure there's curiosity and wonder, but uh, did you get a, an overall sense of dread?
4: I didn't, you know, Tom certainly did, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you had there were dual reactions going on, obviously. So, uh, but you know, I think that it's you know, definitely a moment that the, the hair goes up on the back of your neck and you're kind of wondering. <laughs> WTF, so to speak. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I guess for me, the the curiosity outweighed anything else and, um, you know, caused me to say, wow, I want the answer to this. I want to know, you know, what's going on, which I think to a certain degree is should be a prerequisite for a lot of people who delve into this stuff. You know, there's way too many occasions that I've seen people running from a haunted location uh, because something happened. And my reaction is, uh, okay, get out of the way. I'm going in there to see you know, what, <laughs> all right, you know, this is what we're here for. Uh, yeah. So, you know, certainly to that degree, uh, that probably explains you know, some of the differences in reactions.
1: Yeah. Well, that happened to us a little at, at the Sally house, but it's Scott's defense. It creeped me out, but in a third person way. And what I've come to realize over the years as well is that uh, you may want these, I've thought about this, especially last night, staying up very late and reading the the Black Eyed Kids section over again. It's like, yeah, in some aspect, it would be very interesting for us researching these things, having an experience with a Black Eyed person, because it's an ineffable feeling that you cannot describe the amount of fear. And, And on the other hand, I thought, I don't know if I would want that because I don't even know what that's going to be like until I do experience it. And I don't want to live with that for the rest of my life either. Sure. Yeah. Um, But on the other hand. Common sense, you know,
4: in these situations, obviously, I mean, there's, you know, there are occasions that if you are just, you know, feeling so much negativity or you're feeling, you know, something really isn't right here, then, you know, then it is smart to get out of the area and and the space and kind of reevaluate and say, okay.
1: Okay. I was going to ask you that as a field researcher, if you do get that overwhelming feeling exactly as the uh, paranormal investigator that we mentioned earlier, when you do get that overwhelming feeling of dread and fear and pure evil, your advice is to go ahead and leave.
4: You know, I mean, every individual has to deal with it, how they feel like they are, you know, best suited to. I think that, right. you know, for the most part, I think that you just have to use common sense. And if you, certainly if you feel threatened, right. then at the very least, you know, you step away from the situation and, and evaluate exactly what's going on. mm mm-hmm. And, you know, why? Okay. well, I mean, there's something to that in and of itself that you've had this reaction and, you know, you need to understand what exactly is causing that. And, you know, how do I need to investigate more or do I need to just call it a night and step away from this?
2: Well, as we're getting close to the end of the show here, we did want to ask David a very poignant question about how his life and experience Uh, researching all this stuff for as long as he has now and traveling the world has affected his worldview. Well, uh, before we let you go, I did want to ask you one last question. I mean, you've been looking into these things even by this story since you were in high school and been at this a long time now. Like you said, North Carolina is a fairly religious state, especially uh, back in the 80s. I was here for that too. How has this journey and the research you do and your ongoing work what has that done to your uh, your spiritual? I was just wondering how it might have affected your overall outlook on things, and you know where you come down in terms of uh, how you think things might work behind the scenes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> just the the, the easiest that's question. Another last, three yeah. hours. Yeah. Well.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All of this has certainly affected my worldview it has uh confirmed a lot of it i guess over the years and um solidified it and brought me to different levels of realization you know as as i continue doing this work and you know you'll see from my body of work that i'll do things like strange intruders and you know then i'll turn around and just do stuff that's kind of a straight you know here's some great cryptid stories you know i've been doing this series on uh, different cryptid sightings in in various states around the u.s and um you know I, i think that uh Strange Intruders has has you guys have realized is something that has a lot of overall concepts that I, I was trying to convey to people, and um, you know, it's not something that uh, I'm going to just keep putting out, you know, every every few months, something like that. So there'll, there'll be something along the lines of that that'll come out again. But um, worldview, yeah, it's it's just uh, these experiences and the research and investigations. it you know they continue to. Help me evolve my understanding, I guess, and at the same time confirm a lot of the things that I learned early on from various uh, elders from around the world. And it's a big question that I won't even get into as to where we're going and what all this means. Uh, You know, in some ways, I think each individual has to determine that for themselves. But, you know, I will say that uh, more than ever, we are seeing the manifestation of. Where things have been going since uh, the hype of 2012, you know, everyone thought that was oh, some grand ending of the world, but you know, a lot of traditional cultures were were very defined in saying no, it's not an end, but it's a definite transformation point, and and things get stranger from there, if you will. And as far as I'm concerned, they certainly have, and they continue to. So. Our children, just imagine the kind of things that they're going to be experiencing by the time they're our age, because disclosure alone, as it continues to unfold and, uh, you know, the advances of, of both the quantum sciences and spirituality, really, are going to completely change the foundation of our planet and our consciousness. That's a pretty great answer for a short one. That's good. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Before we let you go, where can our listeners uh, purchase your wares, find your books, where Where should they be going? And then if they have stories to share with you, how should they get in touch with you?
4: So my website is eerielights.com. That is E-E-R-I-E-L-I-G-H-T-S.com. com will have links to all the books. You can find everything on Amazon too, of course. There is a contact section on the website. So if you have stories to share, especially about the little people or any other kind of weird events, feel free to share them with me through that contact form. It it'll go direct to email that I will receive. So I'd love to hear those accounts. And there's also an Eerie Lights Instagram page that I post fun stuff on. And yeah, it's the best way to keep up with me. Lots more projects coming out, a couple more books uh, probably before the end of the year. And lots of exciting things for 2021 has the world hopefully it's back to some semblance of normality.
1: Well, before we go and wrap this all up, I think Scott and I have expressed our thoughts along the way, which probably best. <laughs> so we're not whomping you all with uh, a bunch of uh, heavy and, uh, in my case, just bizarro thoughts on all this because it's just there's a lot to wrap your head around. But I'll just say there's so many other stories that we didn't get to, as we've been saying, you know, that are in the book, but I thought there's a few here that deserved honorable mentions for strange intruders because these are equally frightening and we've talked before philosophically about what really scares people and you got to mention these creatures because you can be scared of things that you don't have to go to. They come to you, but if it's a bright sunny day, maybe that's a little less scary, if you're on a, a corporate, uh, retreat yacht <laughs> for <laughs> a booze cruise and one shows up, that's still scary, but at least you're with other people. That's a defense for it. But what about the things that show up in our most vulnerable state? And where is that? That's safe in your bed at night while you're having pleasant dreams. And these things come to visit you where you're supposedly the most safe. And that's also what frightens me because there's little defense against that, although David does mention some defenses, light defenses. But first, let's talk about these creatures real briefly here. Uh, one of them is a character that a lot of people have asked us to cover, but it's a phenomenon that's widespread, but not with a lot of information on it. And that's the night hag. I'll just paraphrase a little bit from David's book. In modern times, the phenomenon of the alien abduction fits many of the same patterns, But not everyone is seeing little gray aliens during these terrifying encounters. The Night Hag is still a prominent figure in Night Terrors. In classical tales, she's depicted as an old woman with wild, tangled hair, large eyes, rotting teeth, and long, sharp fingernails. Victims of the hag wake in the night and find themselves immobilized. While they are able to open their eyes and hear sounds, they cannot move their bodies. The sense of evil is overwhelming, and something is felt in the room moving around them. The most dreadful aspect, however, is the heavy weight the victim feels on their chest. And there, the image of a hideous old woman slowly draining their energy, their very life force from them. Many cultures believe the old hag is a witch, out stealing energy to continue her dark works. Some literature connects her to the demonic Mara, from which the term nightmare is derived. This demon thrives on attacking people in the night when they are dreaming. And that's the end of that passage other characters here are the incubus and the succubus and the connection to the mythos of Lilith and her mention in the Hebrew Midrash and all those characters, which that happens as a stealing of your life force and energy through sexual means. But what's scary about the incubi and the succubi is that they know in your mind the physical form you find most attractive. Whether that's a person you had a thing for or a combination of physical features that comprises your type, they know what will lure you in and keep you coming back. So they've gone through your browser history. Yes, they have. Yeah, <laughs> they, uh...
2: Also, by the way, I think the old hag is just mad about being called the old hag.
1: <laughs> hey, come on. You know, she could clean herself up. There are facilities available. Right. The or the side. night hag, I should say. Take the succubi, for instance. They appear to be very beautiful creatures. Mm-hmm. Something that appeals to you. It made me think of um, Ex Machina. Yeah, the lead character, he gets a robot that is totally appealing to him, and he starts to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And what is her goal towards the end of the film? Is it to steal something from humans? Is it to complete herself? And maybe there's a connection there to these creatures. There is one school of thought that our energy completes them. They feed off of it. And by stealing it, it enriches them, it nourishes them. And that takes me to the next honorable mention creature here psychic vampires or energy vampires or energy thieves, as David calls them. And of course, the, the term emotional vampires or psychic vampires, the brief explanation from the book is you know, it's people who drain everyone around them of their emotional and psychic or mental energy, feeding off the life force and energy of other people. And of course, there's the hilarious character in What We Do in the Shadows, Colin Robinson, played by Mark Proksh, uh, whose power is that he drains the life force from the living by being so dreadfully boring. I don't know if you've seen that yet, but no. it's, it's very funny. And he's accepted within that group. But what David talks about in, in modern vampire culture circles, where people believe they are some kind of vampire, psychic or energy vampires are an accepted form, but they consider it an intimate act where it's a give and take, but they're part of the group. So yes, they are taken seriously. And and while that's funny, and I'm sure we've all run into or know people like that, there are stories in the book where people have been touched by one of these real beings and instantly felt the energy drain from them, leaving them with exhaustion and deep-seated fear. As occultist Dion Fortune, believed, this is from the book, psychic vampirism was a combination of psychic and psychological pathology, asserting that some mental conditions could lead to a propensity to drain others of energy through psychic means. Imagine Paula in Devil in the Diner, if that thing reached out and touched her, that being, and then she just had to sleep for three days. Yeah. Yeah. That's what those stories are like. They're just equally creepy. There's a good one in the book that also happens in New York City at a dance club, in a lounge, the woman who touches the person receiving this experience knows what she's doing. And the creepy part is that this woman looks at her face and it's morphing during the incident. Like, yeah. oh, that, that just yeah. gave me chills. I'm not comfortable that, with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see that out of anybody, but especially out of a stranger. And it's always a friend of a friend. Like, do you know them? Well, not well, but I thought I'd invite them over. What's wrong with them? Like, well, they just drained half my battery usage and I have to go lay down now for 14 hours. I just wanted to mention this because I think we mentioned it in part one. I don't want to go on too long here, but I want to relay this because I know some people might think this is silly or people's overactive imaginations or they're just sleep deprived. But we do get quite a few letters from people asking what they can do because they're suffering from something that Western medical science has no answer for other than like, well, your your sleep patterns are disrupted. Maybe you should just go take some melatonin. Valerian root and be done with it. Get out of my office, you freak. And they don't have any answers. So that's all they can tell them is uh, something's going on, but it's not any night creature that's happening. So here's a few tips from the book that David says um, might work. Uh, Holy water, saying Ave Maria, or singing it, or the Lord's Prayer, burning sage, frankincense, using white candles. Light is a defense. Also sleeping with other people nearby might help protect you. And then in the book, David writes, uh, holy water was purported to be a powerful defense against these night intruders, as was the reciting of Ave Maria, as we just said. The sign of the cross would expel them, as would the Lord's prayer when spoken aloud. Modern spiritual practitioners who are not Christian, but believe in such energy thieves, say any spiritual symbol will assist in banishing them. Items that purify an environment, as we just mentioned, sage, frankincense, and light, as we said, is a defense against some entities like the succubus and incubus, because they depend on the darkness to help mask their actions. I found that interesting. But here's another interesting angle on all that from some paranormal investigator friends of mine, but also the story that we read in Ouija Part 2 from Warwick, Indiana Paranormal Society, in that they tried to help this woman, but she didn't really want help. She wanted the company, regardless of how it was not great for her life, how it was negative in the end for her and everyone else. What I was talking about uh, that I'd heard from some paranormal investigator friends that they were on a case, whereas they figured it out, it was a succubus case, but he really didn't want it to go away. And if that's the case, if you don't want help, if you want this thing to stay, even though it's draining you of your life force and you look like death warmed over, no one can help you. You have to want the help. So in light of that, the last thing I'll say is that, again, people asked us, like, well, what do you do against the gin?" Like, hey, I think you can study this, you can read this, but not to dwell on it, not to invite that in, because invitation is a big part of it. And another big part of it for me, yeah, don't fantasize about this stuff. Don't imagine the powers you could have and then how you would like to meet one so you could get your will. And also, especially, it happens, it seems, to people who are vulnerable in some way. And that could be emotionally, mentally, or physically troubled, dealing with substance abuse, depressed, brooding and stewing with anger, yearning for something, for some kind of companionship, as we've seen in these succubus cases. And that goes with feelings of loneliness, feelings of hatred also towards someone or something. It's my belief that feelings of hate are never good, as I believe hate begets hate. No matter if it's directed at the people you think are haters or whether you think your hate is justified. These evil beings feed off human emotions of fear and hate, no matter our reasons for feeling them. So don't feed them. Well, folks, it's time for the last topic of the night. We're going to rejoin
2: David for a little bit of a discussion about the Slender Man. Now, we know we brought him up before when we were talking in the uh, Black Eyed Kids series about creepypasta, and we've mentioned the Slender Man in several other episodes over the years. But David has a unique and informed viewpoint on it, and we thought that we would talk to him a little bit about it. And then we're going to wrap out the show with one of the Slender Man stories from his book, Strange Intruders. There's a lot of stuff in your book. We're not touching on all of it. We um, encourage our listeners to get the book. We'll have a link to uh, where you can purchase that in the show notes, of course. But one of the things that I thought was interesting to find in there towards the end of the book, and again, as we talked about the progression of of events and, and in a way, a chronological order to these ideas, was the Slender Man. You know, I always thought of that as a, a complete creepypasta sort of invention <laughs> of the internet, which you detailed how that developed. And, and, and we got into that with... We know that you had talked about Brian Bethel. We had we did a Black Eyed Kids series, as as Forrest said at the top of the show a while back, and Brian came on and yeah. talked about this, and that's when we that's when we really learned about
1: yeah. Uh, and and one of our uh, favorite achievements is Brian Bethel is now a very active member of our Facebook group. Uh, yes, it's great. He's in yeah. he's in there daily. That's <laughs> like he's yeah. a great guy and a
2: and a longtime listener's since then. But one of the things that was interesting was the as you unfolded this and you got into the idea, and again, not getting too much credence to um, oh, everything is a tolpa or whatever, but you did talk about how it's strange how there seem to be instances of the idea of the Slenderman developing prior to this appearance of, you know, performance art and that sort of thing on the internet is it, that seemed to be the takeaway from mm-hmm. chapter nine.
4: It kind of brings the book full circle in a sense for me. in that we start off talking about the gin, you know, something that is, mm-hmm. is ancient and culminate with the Slenderman, which is a modern creation. We know for a fact, uh, the big question is how, much has it really been created has it been created into reality and you know one of the important points i, I like to make about the slender man is uh you know i pointed out about the Jin earlier that we've got almost uh, two billion people that accept the existence of the gin we fast forward to modern times and look at slender man uh, it's a very curious way that this entity developed because it, it was created as a fictional figure uh, during the course of a contest an online contest but it sort of bled over from that. And in fact, it took over the thread. Uh, it initially wasn't called the Slender Man. It, it went through a whole metamorphosis. And you know, back when I wrote the book, I took the time and I read that entire thread, which was a feat in and of itself, you know, <laughs> because there were <was> so <laughs> yep, many entries. <geez>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I really wanted to get a sense of exactly how this thing had unfolded and what had happened. And, you know, for those unfamiliar with it, the essentially. The entity was, came about because some people decided to launch a contest, and the idea was to create a paranormal-themed entity uh, that they could make go viral on the internet and um, you know, get people to believe it. So, of course, initially, people were throwing out different you know, aliens and cryptids and all kinds of things. And then uh, this guy came up with this very subtle concept, uh, essentially for a boogeyman. That eventually became known as the, the Slender Man, and, and eventually one word Slender Man. And it's a very well crafted entity in the sense that, you know, the details are scant at first, so it leaves a lot to people's imagination. And uh, as it evolves, it, it becomes sort of defined, but sort of not, because it's always there in the shadows. You know, it's a there's a vague description, but it's faceless, so there aren't specific defining Parameters that, that limit it in any way, even though it, it sort of encapsulates a, a singular entity. And the curious thing that occurred with the Slender Man is that once it did start to go viral, people started to independently report encounters with this thing, people that had not seen anything online about you know, the Slender Man. And, and uh, what I argue is one of the potentials this entity is that uh, we may have witnessed a tulpa that was created through mass consciousness for the first time utilizing the internet you know because uh, in the modern world we can send a concept you know to the other side of the planet within seconds by posting it online so you know what happens when you pose an idea has reality and you send it around the world via social media and whatnot and, you know, you suddenly have tens of thousands of people reading this saying, oh, my God, you know, over in New Jersey, there's a slender man, <laughs> <that's>, uh, <laughs> you know, snatching kids. Or you get this concept that adds into the collective consciousness. And what does that create? Have we created something? Have we co-created something? Or is it some other entity that already exists that is using that mm. A set of parameters to now manifest and somehow, you know, do so with in a more powerful way, because it's sort of riding on that wave of belief, if you will. Those are just a few thoughts on the Slender Man that intrigued me when I really delved into the the concept. It's just
2: fascinating. And it does beg the question about it's almost as though when you look at the big picture, the more afraid of these things that you are or that society becomes as a whole,
4: the more they start showing up. Absolutely, and and you know part of that is you know we're putting more attention on them collectively, uh, but part of it we could argue that uh, you know we're giving them more energy because we're putting more attention on it. So perhaps we're allowing them to manifest more easily.
1: As so many of these stories that we've uh, visited tonight may turn out to be, is that it's a usable form for something for an entity, for a power, for an energy from the other side, uh, some kind of being to incorporate. And maybe it could be like a rental visage or entity in that it could be several things using this Slender Man sighting. And and again, it's it's something about uh, John Kill's statement is that maybe it's not so much the planet that's haunted, but maybe our own human psyche is haunted. The connection between the other side is... Sure, it's physical. You have black-eyed people. You have uh, lizard folks. uh, You have all kinds of uh, strange beings popping up, but it's all connected to our human consciousness and subconsciousness. And the idea, though, that it can take whatever shape it wants to achieve its means or just exist, there's two things about it. One, it reminded me of the story of the incubus with with the college student and that... What was plaguing him at night was the form of a woman in college that he was very attracted to. But through psychic mediumship means, he was able to get rid of it finally because he realized that it's not her that's the problem. It's something using that shape because it knows that that is what he is most accepting of and most attracted to and was able to worm its way in through that image. And so whatever slender man is, it's fulfilling a need to creep us out like creepy pasta does, but it also frightens us. And it, it's like a pinwheel turbo thing. The air coming in gets compressed that turns the turbo faster. It's a reciprocal nature and a relationship that is fueling both sides and, and achieving some kind of end. But it also seems maybe it's trapped. This is my other stupid idea is that it reminds me of Ray Bradbury's, um, Mars series where there is a, a Martian being that whatever he's near gets trapped into the form of whatever that person needs it to be. And so he turns into a, a figure of Christ near a, a minister who's lost his faith and he's got the stigmata and he's in pain and he and he's crucified. It's like you have to stop doing this. I can't be everything to everybody. But the people, like you said, on a, an individual psychic basis are creating this thing and Slenderman just happens to be a very popular image for that. Does that make any sense?
4: Oh, absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought that comment up from Keel because I've always paid a lot of attention to that idea. And, you know, some of that is due to my personal background and, you know, studying various magical traditions. But I've always been a proponent of looking closely at encounters and understanding the contribution from both sides. Which is not done very frequently because usually when we hear about these things, you know, we hear about what the person saw. But I think it's equally important to understand the person who saw it and maybe why they saw it or or how they contributed to the encounter to begin with. Because not to say that everything's a tulpa, but I think that, you know, on an individual level, whenever we're having an experience like this, we're contributing to the experience and the perception and very possibly the way it manifests and the way it presents itself. And, um, you know, this is why it's important to sort of look at the case in a very holistic manner and understand, you know, uh, that we shouldn't just limit to a singular idea what this event may be explained by many people by default do this. You know, we could pluck out any one particular aspect of, of the, of the field and say, okay, you know, if we look at, uh, for instance, ghost hunters, you know, someone who is investigating a haunted location, if they have a strong Catholic foundation, they're more apt to jump to the conclusion that, uh, you know, there's something demonic or something evil influencing the place. If it's someone who, you know, comes from a completely different background, they're going to have a different perspective. So, you know, how does the, the manifestation of whatever's there play into that? And, you know, how does it uh, co-create that experience for the individual and, of course, what's presented to the public at large? You know, a place can quickly get a, a reputation for being uh, demonic and other people can go there and, and have, you know, equally demonic experiences. But you know, how did that come about exactly? What's the genuine history you know, what really happened there?
2: Well, David, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with it. We're going to go out on one of your Slender Man stories, but we really want to say thanks for coming on. We hope that you'll call us back, especially if you have a particularly enlightening news story. For example, if you catch back up with The Grinning Man. We're here and we'd love to hear about it. And we know our listeners would too. I grew up in a rural area of Virginia. We lived in an old house and it had a lot of trees around it. There was a little clear space in the backyard, but it went right up to some thick woods that were behind the house. My sisters and I mostly played in the front yard because it was bigger and it had more grassy areas. When I was about 10, I started waking up at night. It happened night after night. I would wake up at about 2 in the morning. Usually I would just lay there and try to get back to sleep, not wanting to get in trouble for being up so late. One night, when I was laying there, I heard sounds outside. Since it was summer, my bedroom window was open, and it had a screen in it to let the air in. My room was on the second floor, and it looked out over the backyard. The sound was a scratching noise, and I thought maybe one of our cats had got stuck outside. I went and looked out of my window to try to see what the sound was coming from. I looked down and to the right. I could see the back door from my window because it jutted out a bit. The moon was bright enough to give some light, but I couldn't see any cat there. I stood there looking around the yard the scratching noise had stopped and the wind had picked up a little bit then I noticed something moving at the back of the yard right where the woods started it was too dark to really tell what it was but it seemed to be something very tall by the trees I watched it move and I knew it wasn't a tree because it was walking along the line of the woods then it just stopped And I had the most awful feeling that whatever it was, it was staring at me. I felt really, really afraid, and I ran to my bed, ducking under the covers and staying there until morning. By the next day, I had convinced myself that it had all been a bad dream. I continued to wake up at night for a while, but I didn't get up again to look out of the window just in case. A couple of years passed, and the next incident that I clearly remember happened when I was almost 13. We were still living in the same house, and I was still in the same bedroom. I hadn't really thought about the earlier incident. I I guess at that age, there were plenty of things to occupy my mind. Suddenly, though, I started having trouble sleeping. Like before, I started waking up late in the night between 1 and 3 a.m. I would lay there and try to fall back asleep, which sometimes took a while. It was on one of those nights I was laying there when I heard what sounded like a laugh. It was distant, and I could tell it was coming from outside in the yard. The sound was drifting up through my window. I got out of bed right away to see where it was coming from. Standing there, looking out of the window, I remembered what I had seen when I was 10. It all came back to me in a rush. At the same time, I noticed movement at the back of the yard by the tree line. The fear came back too. This has continued throughout my life. Every few years, I fall back into the pattern of not being able to sleep in the middle of the night, always between the times of 1 and 3 a.m. I start waking up and having trouble getting back to sleep for a few hours. No matter where I've lived, even in different states, the pattern starts, and I start waking up, and I catch glimpses of this thing, whatever it is, outside of my window. For a while, I lived up in a large city in an apartment building. When I started waking up while living there, I thought, well, no way will that thing be here in the city. But it was. Still there. Lurking outside of my bedroom. Always watching. Over the years, I've seen glimpses of him, or, or, or it. It's a very, very tall man. And his arms are impossibly long. I've never seen a face. Just glimpses of his head, which I can tell is bald. I've always felt as if it's just waiting for me to come outside, to see it closer, and find out what it is. I think that's what it wants, but I don't think I would ever come back if I went out there. I relish the times when I'm able to sleep the whole night through and not have to think about it lurking outside. Sadly, though, I've come to believe I'll never be free of this thing until I pass away. I don't think it can ever harm me, though, as long as I stay in the safety of my home. And don't answer its call on those dark nights. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. A very special thanks to our guest, David Weatherly. Halloween may have passed, but we like to stay scary throughout November. Join us next week for a series we've been planning to do for years with our friend, Richard
1: Haddam. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. J-E-F-F.
4: Hi, I'm Lee. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. S O N. Future compensation. I understand this is with no implied promise of... Nikki.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research.
1: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
2: You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
0: Selling a little. Or a lot.